pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Emergencies usually strike without warning. We're surprised when the stock market crashes or power goes out. Certainly, with earthquakes, there's no warning. These things happen. And when it's breaking news, it's too late to prepare. Now you're scrambling and panicked. Best thing to do is prepare for natural disasters or emergency situations while things are still calm. So ask yourself right now, could you feed yourself or your family for two weeks with the food you have at home at this moment? If not, it's time to act and secure an emergency food supply. I use My Patriot Supply. And you should, too. A two-week food kit will get you started. This week, it's on sale for only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. These food kits include meals that last up to 25 years in storage. So order now and prepare yourself so there are no surprises. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Forget about it. If you can't remember the phone number, 888-441-7290, and you can't remember preparewithsouthernsense.com, you know the name of the show. It's Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-Sense.com. All right. And welcome back to another exciting show here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreakers, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. (laughs) Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern 
hyphensense.com. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my effervescent co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good <laughs> afternoon, Curtis. How are you? Hey, I'm doing quite well, trying to get over a cold, but in the meantime, I'm enjoying the spectacle that the um, Democrats are running on Trump. I think it'll have the same outcome as all the other things they've tried. It'll be, you know, nothing, nothing there. Well, we are live up on Facebook. Uh, I haven't been able to simulcast up on YouTube, but I put the video later on up onto YouTube. So anyone watching on uh, Facebook right now sees a, another co-host sitting by my shoulder, and that happens to be Baby Puppy. <laughs> and, yes, her name is Puppy. <laughs> she, goes, she follows me around like a puppy dog. Anyway, we got ourselves so much to talk about. Um We've got the attempt to impeach Trump going on. They're absolutely rabid over there. But we're going to start off the show with Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch. He'll be joining us at the start of the show. Ryan Lovelace has a new book out called Search and Destroy, the Inside Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. And just before this impeachment latest kerfuffle hit the fan over his phone conversation to the president of the Ukraine, they were trying to – Oust Kavanaugh just just a week ago. That's hit the back burner, thankfully. Uh, so <laughs> the temps have gone absolutely rabid. Uh, and then we're going to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel um, Sargiri Sar- Sang. Um, I'm going to mess this poor guy's name up. Sargis Sangari. Uh, retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel. He'll be joining us. And then we're going to end the show with C.S. Walker talking about what is going on uh, with Biden, the Ukraine, the attempt to impeach Trump, and all that good stuff. So much to talk about, so much to do. And uh, these are my notes for today if you're watching the video. (laughs) It's a nice little thick stack. (laughs) Anyway. Want to welcome everyone that's watching uh, over on Facebook. Those that are also listening here in the uh, chat room on Blog Talk Radio, uh, welcome aboard. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post them. Uh, if you see me swerving my head, that's because I'm checking to see what's going up onto Facebook. That said, Curtis, take a deep breath, Annie. Um, anyone that watches the show or listens to it knows we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Kyle David Olinger of the Montgomery Police Department of Maryland. His end of watch was Thursday, April 18th of 2019. But his original injury dates back to August 13th of 2003. And this is titled Beyond the Darkness by David J. Terrestri, and he writes so wonderfully. Around midnight, August 13, 2003, Officer Kyle Olinger of the Montgomery County, Maryland Police Department patrolled the Central Business District of Silver Spring. At the intersection of 2nd Avenue and Spring Street, Olinger noticed a 1993 Chrysler, New Yorker, parked in a peculiar manner. With his suspicions aroused, Olinger conducted a traffic stop to investigate further. A brief exchange with the man in the driver's seat revealed he had no license, 
but since he was not actually operating the vehicle, Olinger simply ordered him out of the car and asked him to move on. Still, like any good cop, Olinger took note of the incident and stayed in the back of his mind as the evening wore on. He was skeptical about why a man with no operator's license was sitting in a large sedan parked in the center of town. He was obviously waiting for something or someone. That healthy skepticism, what's often regarded as a police officer's sixth sense, proved right on the mark. Sure enough, Olinger spotted the same car again, only this time it was occupied by a different driver and three occupants. At a distance, Olinger watched the Chrysler make an abrupt U-turn and strike a parked car. He immediately activated his overhead lights, pulled over the vehicle, and radioed for backup. Olinger approached the vehicle in a cautious manner, trying his best to remain out of the fatal funnel. He then engaged in conversation with the three passengers and ordered the driver out of the vehicle. The traffic stop seemed to be going routinely, yet something was wrong. Olinger knew it. He sensed it. And that's when, out of the corner of his eye, he caught the passenger in the front seat, moving about, reaching under his seat. Olinger recognized the threat. He rushed over to the passenger's side of the sedan, and there, on the floorboard, he saw a pearl-handled chrome thirty-two caliber pistol. That's when all hell broke loose. As he had trained for so many times before, Olinger established a tactfully safe position and threw and drew his Beretta. Then he took command of the situation. He ordered everybody in the Chrysler to put their hands up, moving closer. Olinger extended his arm to emphasize his verbal commands. Everyone complied with Olinger's orders except for the front passenger. In one fluid movement, he bent to the floor and retrieved the gun. He was fast. He was also cunning. He grabbed Olinger's extended arm, gaining a tactical advantage and pulling the officer out of position. The two men struggled. Then there was a muzzle flash and a shot rang out. Olinger was struck in the throat just above the protection of his ballistic vest. And for one fleeting moment, the world around him went blank. All Olinger can remember seeing is a black hole surrounded by a hazy ring of light. Time slowed to a crawl. Then Olinger's head crashed against the pavement. He lay there dazed and confused, unable to defend himself as he heard the men get out of the Chrysler. They stood over him, perhaps intending to finish him off. At the very least, they wanted Olinger's Beretta. Unfortunately, Olinger had fallen onto his weapon side and they couldn't take his service weapon. Passing traffic must have spooked Olinger's attackers because they gave up on trying to take the Beretta. And because he could not move his lower body and his eyes were closed, they rode him off as dead. They piled back into the Chrysler and raced from the scene. After they left, Olinger was able to open his eyes. He knew he had been shot and he needed help. That help came in the form of a cab driver. He had been passing by after the attack and risked his own safety to come to the aid of the wounded officer. Olinger summoned enough energy to key his lapel microphone while the cabbie broadcast an 
officer down in need of assistance call and recited the suspect's vehicle tags as a flash lookout to the awaiting units. The officer down call summoned scores of Montgomery County police officers to Olinger's aid. First to arrive on the scene was the department's Bethanyasia SWAT team. Although he was facilitating between states of awareness and unconsciousness, Olinger managed to provide them with a detailed description of his assailants and how he had been shot. Armed with that information, the Montgomery County officers fanned out in an extensive manhunt, meticulously canvassing the landscape for the would-be cop killers. Perhaps there is no stronger motivation in law enforcement than to bring someone who harms your own to justice. The Olinger manhunt benefited from that emotion. Within a short span, all the suspects, including the shooter, were taken into custody and the Chrysler was recovered. While the suspects were being apprehended, Olinger was whisked away to the Washington Hospital Center, a specialized trauma facility in Montgomery County. Montgomery County officers, as well as the entire Washington area law enforcement community, flocked to the hospital and set up a continuous vigil. They didn't know whether Olinger was going to live or die. After nine hours of surgery, doctors told the officers that Olinger was going to live. But they had bad news as well. The risky operation had saved his life, but the surgeon could not extract the 32 slug that jammed against his cervical spine. Olinger was paralyzed from the chest down. He was told he would never walk again. As the weeks turned into months, recovery was replaced by rehabilitation. Olinger was flown to the Craig Hospital in Englewood, Colorado, one of the top brain and spinal cord injury therapy centers in the country. The Montgomery County Police Department paid the entire cost of the three-month treatment program as part of its ongoing commitment to stand by their officer. Over the next year, adjustment proved to be slow, arduous, and now confined to wheelchair and without the use of his legs, Olinger painstakingly relearned just about every aspect of his normal life. Simple tasks that had once accomplished in a couple of minutes now took up to half an hour to complete. Such an adjustment is tough enough for one person living alone. But Olinger was a single father. The combination would have proved overwhelming for many people, but not for Olinger. He confronted all of his challenges head on. Six months after the shooting, the trigger man faced his day in court. The Rockville courtroom was packed with an array of media, Olinger's family, and his fellow officers from the Montgomery County PD. After deposing of preliminary challenges and laying down the basic legal groundwork, the prosecution swiftly, swiftly proceeded to the focal point of the case, Olinger's testimony. The gallery quieted it as Olinger and the Maryland State Attorney, who played the role of the shooter, recreated the events of that night. Their reenactment was aided by the presence of the actual passenger side of the vehicle. It was removed from the car and reassembled in the courtroom 
to provide the jurors with a vivid visual reminder of the attack. Presented with this compelling testimony and convincing physical evidence, the jury deliberated less than two hours before coming back with an attempted first-degree murder conviction and two lesser charges. Throughout the entire proceeding, Olinger's assailant remained cold and aloof and expressed absolutely no remorse for his crime. But he will have time to think about his crime. The judge handed down a prison term of life, the maximum penalty allowed by the Maryland law. Some people would say that Olinger's attacker got what he deserved. He's locked away for life. But looking at the brawny, former Marine and dedicated cop who is not now locked for life into a wheelchair. Wheelchair, it is hard to see the justice. Understandably, the verdict provides little solace for Olinger. Gone forever is his ability to remain physically active, and simple activities that once brought joy to his life were taken away by the shooter's decision to attack. Worst of all, he could no longer wrestle and roughhouse with his teenage son or go for long runs to stay in shape. There are things worse than death in this life, he says. For me, it's paralysis. The experts gave Olinger a 1 in 99 chance that he'd ever walk again. Not great odds, if you're betting in, in Vegas. But there was that 1%. And for Olinger, that was enough to keep him striving towards that goal. He participated in an intense aqua therapy regiment and he submitted to acupuncture. He also believed that perhaps some forthcoming medical advance would someday help him regain his mobility. A lot of people would have given up long ago, but Olinger kept pushing. He credited his positive mindset to his martial arts training. He was a third-degree black belt with 26 years of experience, and he continued to verbally instruct from a wheelchair at his Aikido studio in Mount Airy, Maryland. He had also returned to work with the Montgomery County PD as a detective with the Special Investigative Division. His new role involved interpreting intelligence and preparing briefs for the department. His new position was a desk job, but Olinger still thought like a street cop. He remained a sworn officer, and he still qualified and carried his issued firearm. As he would tell you, once a cop, always a cop. And his paralysis didn't stop him from serving his community and his fellow officers. Olinger said that there were many things he could have done differently that night he was shot. When the front seat passenger reached for that weapon in the Chrysler's floorboard that justified the use of deadly force, Olinger believed he should have fired and neutralized the imminent threat to his safety. He remembered that he rapidly took into account the assailant's age and the center mass of his target area, but he didn't have a shot. And all he could have done was shoot the man in the back of the head, and that would have given the shooter the appearance of a police-sanctioned execution-style killing. Olinger said, that prevalent anti-law enforcement sentiment of jurors throughout the country flashed through his mind as they thought about taking the shot, and he held back in restraint. 
Unfortunately, it would ultimately cost him his life. Olinger serves as a warning for other officers, and he wanted them to learn from his experience. Already, the Olinger shooting is being studied at the Montgomery County Police Academy. Olinger's aspired to return to the academy to tell his story to a new generation of recruits. If I no longer can help people with my physical presence as a street officer, I can help them with my mind. Thirteen years after being shot, Olinger succumbed to his injuries. Today's show is dedicated to police officer Kyle David Olinger. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its fantastic future. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. You're here listening to Suffolk Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Ah, oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-sense.com. Oh, boy, Curtis. Ah, we're going to have our, our guest call in about five minutes. Um, but uh, 
want to welcome everyone that has joined us over in our chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, as well as everyone piling up over on Facebook. Man, I'm getting more people over on Facebook, believe it or not, than I am getting on uh, YouTube. And if anyone's looking for last week's show, I don't know what Facebook did with it. Um, they lost it? <laughs> they made it disappear. <laughs> and I tried oh, to re-upload it. And it said processing, processing, and I forgot about it because I've got, <laughs> you know me, Curtis, i got four computers in the house. And I walked away from the computer. I had left the computer on. It's my main uh, frame. I come back a week later. I pull it up, and it's still processing. <laughs> so Man. I'm getting shadow banned on Facebook and certain things. <laughs> so I'm going to try to see if I can get last week's show back up. Uh, but I do know Reddit has uh, banned me in two of their categories, believe it or not, for veterans as well as for Christianity. I mean, it, it, what show can be more Christian and more pro-veteran than this show? Hey, you <laughs> no. never know with these guys. Oh, man, you never know. You never, ever know. Hey, listen, uh, while we're waiting for our guests to call in, there was an excellent article that came up earlier this week on the Daily Signal uh, from Marilyn Sinek. And it, it's an awesome, awesome article. Uh, it's titled, I was cursed out of a coffee shop for my views. Can we all do better? Uh, this young lady obviously goes to the same coffee shop every single day and has her coffee and crepes, Suzettes, or whatever it is she gets. And she's been going to the same shop for looks like you know quite a long time so everyone knows her there and she says i go in i just mind my own business i say hi to everyone i greet everyone you know with courtesy i don't express political views there i'm just there to get a coffee and a bite for breakfast and it seems an employee there uh, knows that she works for the nebraska family alliance which is a pro-life group which also combats human trafficking and supports the families and also champions First Amendment uh, rights, our First Amendment freedoms. And this employee there, who happens to be transgender, came up to her uh, publicly and pursed her up one side and down the other, telling her to get out. If she were to ever come back in again, she would be refused service. Here she is. She's just getting a cup of coffee and some and something to eat. She's not pushing her views. And so what? It doesn't matter where you work. You're there as a customer. She's not asking that person that's working the counter to support her views. She just wants a cup of coffee, extremely non-political cup of coffee. Well, and that's the problem with the left. If you don't agree with them. They will ostracize you, you know. It's it's almost as if they cannot exist, you know, um, without just their viewpoint. You know, anybody that express a different viewpoint, you know, you got to go. You know, we we can't have you around, and you know that that's un-American. I mean, I I can't say it any better. You know, we should be able to accept other people's yeah. views even if we don't agree with them. You know. Well, you but see, they, they, they try to equate it, what this individual did. And by the way, the employee was fired, and the owner of the shop did ap- apologize to Marilyn. So I, I congratulate them on doing that. Good. But it's one thing when you're asked to bake a cake, uh, 
with a political, religious, or social theme on it, uh, where you have a Christian conservative baker who would end up violating their faith-based beliefs protected by the First Amendment by creating a cake that supports an LBGT marriage. Uh, you had that one baker that had serviced this one guy who happened to have been gay. They, they knew he was openly gay. He'd been buying for them for 20 years. And when he came in and says, well, I'm getting married. I want you to do the wedding cake. They said, well, we'll be happy to provide you with the materials. We'll, we'll make a plain cake. You decorate it yourself or get someone else to decorate it for you. But we can't decorate it the way you want because it violates our religious views. That's the person that sued him, sued the bakers. For 20 years, they had been friends, and they said, well, we'll do anything else. You're also free to go anywhere else and have it done. You're not going to upset us. See, it, it works one way, but not the other way. It's a one-way street That's with true. them. It's either their way or the highway. And another thing I don't like is um, after a hard day of working the job and hitting the, the streets, uh, a police officer goes into a restaurant to get something to eat and is told that they're not welcome. They won't be served, you know, and, um, and that's that. And I, I think that's, that's wrong, you know, terrible. Oh, we see that time. We see that time and time again. And a lot of these fast food restaurants, you've got someone that's, you know, a minimum wage employee handling the window or the front counter. And sure, if they get fired from that job, for them, it's easy to go over to another fast food place. But don't expect a recommendation if I'm the owner of that fast food place. And we see it time and time again where law enforcement officers who put their life at risk are being denied service because the person behind the counter is anti-cop. They may be antifa. They may be Black Lives Matter, but because there's someone there out who wants to serve and protect the public, that individual, oh, no, we're going to deny you service. It, it, as again, it's a one-way street. It's either their way or no way. And what this woman went through to be publicly humiliated um, is phenomenal. Now, I see callers showing up in our studio. If this is our guest uh, please press one on your keypad because I don't recognize the phone number. Um, okay, and it is. So let's bring our guest in onto the show and let's welcome aboard from Jihad Watch, Robert Spencer. Good afternoon, Robert. How are you today? And welcome back to the show. Just great. Thanks. How are you? Oh, Hello? just doing fine. Yeah, we're here. We can hear you. We got you. Good. We got you. Uh, there's so much. So much is, is going on, and when I was putting my notes together last night, I, I don't, don't even know where to start. You recently, though, came back from a um, seminar over in Israel where you talked about a host of different topics. And when you think about radical Islam and the Islam militant movements, you know, it has spread into so many different avenues of security and our daily lives that most people aren't even aware of it you know and as i was looking at it's surprising yeah it's uh i think people are used to the idea of it now after 9-11 was a big shock but nowadays uh it's as if the statement of the mayor of london Sadiq khan 
who is himself a Muslim, who said very famously that uh, terrorism is just something that is part and parcel of living in a great city. I think people take people really do take that kind of thing for granted, and so. Uh, if there are a certain number of jihad terror attacks in the United States, then they don't mind. And at the same time, the uh, jihad groups have adopted a different strategy, and they think that it is not wise for them to mount large-scale terror attacks like 9-11 because they draw too much attention. But they're slowly uh, – they're very well embedded within uh, the political and media establishments, and they're biding their time and infiltrating in various ways, and it's all working out great for them. Well, they have different groups such as CARE and other affiliates of the Muslim Brotherhood that have infiltrated our society on so many, many different levels. A couple of years back, my sweet NYPD had to remove from the patrol guide any reference to Muslim terrorists. They had yes. to take a whole section out because they've infiltrated. How dare you even suggest that a terrorist may be of the Muslim faith? Yes. The Obama administration did that across the board. Uh, the counter-terror strategy of the Obama administration was called countering violent extremism. It Very carefully, if you can still read the uh, countering violent extremism material online, and you can see that it never mentions – uh, Islam or jihad in connection with terrorism. The whole exercise was to separate Islam from terrorism, which unfortunately it's great for Obama to do it, but the terrorists were not doing it. Well, you know, you wrote a really great article for PJ Media earlier this week, and it was titled Trump Administration to UNC and Duke Quit Promoting Islam on Our Dime. Uh, we see it in our our public schools, where the world history promotes Islam, even teaching the Shahada so far, it's in our universities and colleges. We have a whole generations being indoctrinated that Islam is good, Judaism and Christianity is bad. They're bigots. We've got everyone yes. being brainwashed on all ends. This is certainly true, yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, Response after 9-11 on the part of George W. Bush and many others was to try to make sure that Muslims in the United States didn't feel uh, uh, unnecessarily singled out, and that was that's fine as well. But the problem is that uh, if you're dealing with terrorists who are Muslims, then you have to go into mosques. You have to uh, investigate Muslims to some degree, and if you allow Islamic groups like CARE, which is tied to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, to claim that any such action is hateful and bigoted and racist, then you're allowing them to control the counterterror response and effectively to stymie that counterterror response. And uh, this is what we've seen all over the place, and especially in colleges and universities, that uh, what you have is a concerted effort to make sure that Muslims don't feel victimized or demonized or marginalized. And what it turns out to, to be is that they have uh, a kind of deference and Islam is treated with a respect that, as you note, it is never accorded to Judaism and Christianity. Yeah, it's, it's funny because when – I used to ride into my command uh, in Brooklyn. I would go past the mosque that was uh, off of Cypress Avenue, and I always wondered 
why there was armed guards outside the mosque. And then in 1993, the World Trade Center was attacked the first time. Now, they already had armed guards. And as we fast forward through time, uh, we see that they now put together in Brooklyn their own patrol, mimicking the uniforms of NYPD, mimicking the vehicles of NYPD. And yet they use the excuse, well, the Hasidims have the Shamrim patrol and we have other ethnicities that have their patrol. So we need to protect and educate the public with our patrol. But on the shaman patrol, I never saw them mimic our uniforms or our vehicles. Any other civilian patrol never saw them mimic our vehicles or our uniforms. Yes, that's right. Uh, this is a determinedly deceptive effort that is uh, something that you don't see in the, the, the Jewish defense group and the others. And it's patently dishonest and cynical for them to claim that they're exactly the same thing. Uh, it's really remarkable when you see the Muslim patrol cars that looks like you're being stopped by the police. And yet uh, all of this is is supposedly an initiative to try to protect Muslims from being victimized. But Muslims are not being victimized. Uh, there are There's an epidemic nowadays in New York City of Jews being attacked on the street, Nazi swastikas being painted all over the place. It's really very disturbing. But there's absolutely nothing like that happening with the Islamic community. And yet the thing is that in our society today, victimhood is a very big deal. It's a big business. And if they can portray themselves as victims, they can deflect attention from jihad terror activity and, uh, and, and gain special favors and accommodations. And so we even have many Muslims faking hate crimes. Uh, there was a notorious incident on the New York City subway a couple of years ago. A girl said that her hijab was pulled off by um, MAGA hat-wearing Trump fanatics and so on. It was all made up. There are many other such stories. Uh, because they, they don't have any actual anti-Muslim incidents, so they make them up, uh, the, these Islamic supremacist groups, and then they use them to try to gain political points. Robert. Well, I think you said something important, important though. You said something very, very important because it, you're right. It is big business. <clears throat> if we cut off the money that – it helps encourage acts like this. If we cut off the media attention, uh, that business will shrink, wouldn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the thing is that every time, I mean really every time, with no exaggeration, that there's a story involving Muslims, you get a quote in the, in the mainstream media from the Council on American Islamic Relations, and they constantly call it a Muslim civil rights an advocacy organization without ever mentioning that uh, it was the Justice Department that said it had ties to Hamas and that it's opposed every counterterror measure that's ever been proposed or implemented. And so it's not really a trustworthy source and certainly not a voice for civil rights, but it's accorded this respect in the mainstream. And so it has a disproportionate influence in the public debate. Robert. My co-host Curtis uh, is with us, so go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it the o Obama administration that um, told law enforcement that uh, mosques were off-limit? And if that is yeah. correct, um, does he have the authority to uh, dictate that kind of policy? 
the yeah, president? as far as I know, there was nothing illegal about that. I could be wrong. I'm no lawyer, but uh, I don't think that there is anything that uh, forbids the president from saying that he wants the resources of federal law enforcement or counterterror intelligence investigations and so on to uh, divert them their their activities to investigating one thing instead of another. I think that that's perfectly within his rights. Uh, it was drastically wrong, of course. It's, it's uh, something that's inexcusably wrongheaded, but I don't know that it's illegal. No, we don't know about that at all. Um, we have you talked about victimization, and you've got the squad out there. You know, I had a laugh because you know I think I told you that I was on duty that day in '93 when the Trade Center was hit the first time. It was the end of February of '93, and we had where they were claiming now that care was born out of 9-11. No, care rose up from the ashes of, of the 93 bombing. It was their way of ex- protecting the Muslim community and excusing the bombers in there, saying you know, it was radical, it's not mainstream, it's not everyone else in the world. Muslims really don't want to kill Christians and Jews. Uh, care came out of the 93 bombing. And we, we hear disinformation we hear constantly if you criticize anyone someone especially like um uh, Ilhan omar how how dare the president call her out in public in something no no you've got to ban the first amendment you have to protect islam at any 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 cost yeah care as a matter of fact has called on twitter to ban the president because he criticized Ilhan omar and I think it's it's really astonishing that this sort of thing is taken seriously by anyone. But yeah, CARE was founded in 1994, uh, not after 2001, as Ilhan Omar herself actually claimed. Uh, in 94, it was founded by Nihad Awad and Omar Ahmed of the Islamic Association for Palestine, which was a Hamas front. And it was designed to uh, advance the Hamas agenda in the United States. Of course, it's expanded way beyond that and is obstructing counterterror efforts, uh, defaming and de- destroying the careers of those who stand up and speak honestly about the nature and magnitude of the jihad threat and so on. So quite a bit of quite a few other things that it has ended up doing. Now, I, I found an article, um, I put it aside somewhere, I can't find it right at the moment, but I found it interesting that Facebook is now has algorithms on it that allow radical Islam to seek out converts to it and get recruits. They'll use the same algorithms to ban someone like you or me, but they won't ban the recruiting of radicals. Yeah, it's really a disgrace. It's it's very strange. There are uh, there are Al Qaeda and ISIS recruitment materials on Facebook. Nobody does anything about it. Facebook doesn't seem to care. Meanwhile, they act with uh, very great speed against foes of jihad terror, and many have been banned, uh, unshadow banned, such that they don't really have any significant readership on Facebook. It dropped in the middle of 2017. Uh, early in 2017, rather, um, just one day suddenly, I was getting 2,000 uh, referrals a day from Facebook. It dropped one day by 90% to uh, 200 a day, and uh, has never recovered. Uh, this is the uh, 
effects of a concerted effort to silence voices that dissent from the far-left agenda. It's not really about Islam in this case primarily, although because the Democrats and the left are sold out to the Islamic agenda, uh, the foes of jihad terror and Sharia oppression get caught up in this. But what it's about for them is to try to prevent the 2016 election from happening again. And uh, they want to keep that. They want to make sure that they elect Democrats in 2020 and destroy Trump. And so they don't uh, want to allow voices that uh, might support Trump or lead people to vote for him to be heard. Well, you know, 2020 election is very, very important, and I'm glad you brought that up. Just so listeners know, we're speaking with Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch. You can find him at jihadwatch.org. And you've got a new book coming out in December uh, called The Palestine Delusion, The Catastrophic History of the Middle East Peace Process. But there is a group out there that wants to put 5,000 Muslims on the next election ballot to run nationwide. Uh, Should we be frightened? Yeah, this is a concerted effort. It started in 2016. There were 80 Muslims running for various offices around the country, and uh, they are certainly going to be running more in 2020. Now, of course, depend, it depends on the Muslim whether this is a matter of great concern, but uh, unfortunately, many of these candidates are backed by far-left uh, groups and groups like the Hamas-linked Council on American-Islamic Relations to the degree that it ends up being something that vastly expands their voice and influence, as we've seen with Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib in Congress, that uh, this uh, confers upon their far-left views a certain legitimization. Yeah, because going through your website, I found so many fantastic articles. And, yeah, I do get your newsletter in my mailbox. I have been getting it for years. Uh, I encourage other people to get it, too. Um, And I just found the article on the algorithm. Gee, Annie, we're really up to date here now. Um, We have the – let me get the article here. The Ayatollah Khomeini has put out a – I don't know what you call it, an edict or a fatwa, uh, saying that women were to wear the hijab if they're to be spared depraved behavior. There's a push worldwide for women to accept wearing the hijab in so much now that in Australia next month, in just a matter of a couple of days, they're coming out with a TV series, a comedy TV series about a woman in a hijab called The Halal Girls, G-U-R-L-S. Women are a subservient. They are second-class citizens. They only inherit half of what a man does. It takes three men, I mean, three people, I'll get this fast backwards, three women to equal one man in testimony or anything else. So why would women accept this? Yeah, it's two uh, two women for one man testimony. But in any case, the uh, Islamic law certainly does mandate discrimination against women, uh, mandates that women can be beaten if the man fears disobedience from them. I mean, they don't even have to be disobedient. He just has to fear disobedience. And uh, this is compounded by the tendency of Western feminists 
to see the hijab and everything that goes with it as some wonderful expression of multiculturalism that they uh, have nothing to say about. And this is what's really what's really appalling about this, that instead of standing up for the rights of women in Muslim countries, they are uh, abandoned to their fate by these women who think that they are being culturally sensitive by doing so. And so you have women who have been uh, sentenced to 10 years in prison, women who have been brutalized, tortured, even killed for not wearing the hijab. And in the West, you have feminists wearing the hijab in solidarity with the hijab-wearing women who are supposedly oppressed by wicked Trump supporters in the United States. That's a lot of hogwash, but it has a lot of traction in uh, the establishment media. Yeah, it, it's amazing because they're coming out with this halal girls to promote. And I'm wondering how many young girls will watch this TV show and say, hey, you know, maybe I'll just abandon my Christian or Jewish faith and convert to Islam. Isn't that the main purpose now, to gain more converts yeah, sure. by going after the youth? It's not necessarily uh, directly the plan to gain converts, but there's no doubt that this uh, uh, TV show that will present, no doubt, a whitewashed and rosy version of Islam, uh, when compared with the uh, relentlessly negative depictions of Christianity and Judaism in the establishment media, will make many people convert. Um, I think the idea behind the non-Muslim television executives and so on who passed on this is that they have bought into the nonsense that Muslims are some sort of victimized, depressed class in the United States and that they need to redress that by showing that Muslims are normal folk just like everybody else. And uh, so they present this rosy, whitewashed vision in this TV series, and it will end up with people converting to Islam. And some of them, unfortunately, will become jihad terrorists. Uh, I track this all the time on my website, Jihad Watch. There is a steady stream of converts to Islam who turn to jihad violence and join terror groups. And this is something that nobody seems to be interested in among uh, law enforcement or counter-terror officials, which I think is very curious. Uh, you never see converts to Christianity or to other religions becoming violent. And uh, it's, it's strange to me that there's absolutely no interest among authorities in the fact that this, is a, this just keeps happening over and over again, that converts to Islam become violent. And it's a testimony, of course, to the power of the victimhood propaganda that is so prevalent well, and has made for these TV series in the first place. Well, you, you mentioned the violent attacks uh, because you have an article up on your website, jihadwatch.org, that the BBC only reported three out of 149 jihad terror attacks. And here you're, you're bombarded daily with the media talking about mass shootings here in the United States, but they completely ignore the massive executions, beheadings, or rapes that go on in areas that have become heavily Muslim, such as in France, uh, where one guy in France drove into the crowd screaming Alu Akbar, taking out people. Uh, you have massive rapes and other assaults attacking in Muslim heavy, dense areas in Germany and in England. The media will not talk about them, but Americans are crazy because of these mass shootings. Yeah, here again, it's because of this 
propaganda about Muslims being victims. And this has been so effective that uh, even news media sources think that they'll be hurting innocent people or allowing for white supremacists or racists or whatever they're calling people today to uh, benefit if they report on the activities of jihad terrorists. Uh, recently at Jihad Watch, I had a story about a family in Germany, and their daughter was raped and killed by a Muslim migrant. And their first concern was that they were hoping right-wing extremists would not exploit the killing of their daughter. And I think, okay, so in other words, they want to shame people into not speaking about the root causes of what happened and not speak about the teachings of Islam that allow for the seizure of infidel women and their sexual assault. These things are actually in the Quran, and yet uh, this family has been so brainwashed by the multicultural propaganda that pervades everything that they, their, their daughter has been killed, and the first thing they think about is, oh, we can't let the right wing use this. You know, you mentioned the Quran, and I keep on flashing back to when I went head to head with this one imam who said the Quran will never replace the U.S. Constitution, and I waved my Quran in his face. And his, that's not what it says in this book. <laughs> he wasn't Indeed. too happy with me. <laughs> having but that's read the absolutely Quran. true. <laughs> but There's that's no what we have to do. That. We have to challenge. We need to have a voice to challenge, and we're being shamed into silence. Yes. Well, that's a, a very concerted effort. Remember, Hillary Clinton said to do that. She recommended that. She said that uh, she actually was speaking. People have forgotten this, but this was back in uh, uh, 2010 or 11, and she was Secretary of State, and she went to Istanbul to speak at the conference of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which for years has been trying to get the member states of the UN to criminalize criticism of Islam. And she said, we can't uh, do that directly because we have the First Amendment, but we can uh, use good old-fashioned techniques of peer pressure and shaming to get people to stop saying what we don't like. And so uh, I think that's worked wonderfully for them, that most Robert. people are afraid of saying anything critical of Islam because they know they'll be shamed. Yes, sir. Yeah, what, what percentage um... – in Congress, um, say, for instance, Muslims um, would warrant a change in, in structure in our our republic. In other words, how much, how many Muslims you think, percentage-wise, would it take in Congress to start changing our our republic into Islamic, you know, type um, society? Well, because the they're getting into the, office. They are getting into office. They're running at yes. the state, local, federal level. I don't think it would have to be many at all because the left is so eager to accommodate them, eager to do uh, the bidding. You know, uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, they are setting the agenda for the Democratic Party now. Remember that uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi was against impeachment proceedings because they don't have any reason to impeach the president. He hasn't done anything wrong. But uh, now they're going for it because Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib want it and Cort uh, their ally Ocasio-Cortez. And so it's uh, 
I don't think that there would have to be very many at all, uh, 10% or fewer, for the Islamic agenda to start to be enacted in this country. Wow. It would just be uh, because the left is so pliant and willing to go along. Well, we've already had it in our society. On 9-11, a Christian church was barred and it canceled their 9-11 memorial service because the Muslim community up there, you know, care stepped in and got it canceled. We see this nonstop. We see, like I said, the invasion into our public schools, our universities, our colleges, into our local uh, state and federal government. We have right now Captain Morgan had a, a thing on their website when he went on to there. You had to tell them whether or not you were a Muslim or not. Can you believe yes. Captain Morgan? This yeah, is it's crazy. Really. And we've allowed yes. it to seep into our society. Yes, that's right. And people have not been realizing what has been going on because uh, it's been couched very skillfully in the guise of working against discrimination and hatred and so on. And of course, nobody wants to really be a racist or to discriminate against anybody. And so it worked beautifully. Yeah, well, fortunately, enough people got on the Captain Morgan website and complained, and they have since taken it down. But they're in our corporate structure, and you see the influence constantly. And most of us ignore it day by day, but we have to start paying attention. If we don't, our nation will forever be changed. And Will we ever recover? I don't think so, because look at what's happened already in England, Germany, France, and several other countries. Um, you've got Erigen that wanted wants Sharia worldwide. There's there's no yeah. doubt about that. You've got a dearborn imam saying that Trump is responsible for the jihad attacks in the oil field. Trump's fault. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's really uh, nuts, but the thing is the left just puts this stuff out as if it were axiomatic. And if we don't pay attention, you know, we're on a one-way road, and we're going downhill from there. You know, your book is coming out in December, uh, The Palestinian Delusion. Will you talk about the Palestinian, uh, quote, peace process? where there really is no real true peace process because there was never really a true Palestine. How can we have a no, peace process wasn't. for something so, that never existed? That's quite right. The uh, left says that the, the, the Israelis are on stolen land and that it's uh, uh, usurping the Palestinian land and so on. There was never a Palestinian state. And never, there's no Palestinian nationality that's distinct from that of the Arabs of the area. The, the Palestinians, as I show in the book, were invented uh, in order to uh, be a public relations tool to beat Israel with because the Israelis were being seen as the courageous underdog facing massive Arab states around them. And so now that's all turned around and you have the tiny Palestinian people facing the massive Israeli war machine. The book uh, goes through the history of all the attempts to make peace, shows why they never work, and explains why they will never work and why we need a massive uh, rethinking of this entire situation. Well, Robert, it has been a pleasure having you on. As soon as that book comes out, you got to get me a copy, and we'll have you back on, and we'll talk about that. Um, it, it is a 
subject that we really have to pay attention to because if Israel falls, there goes the rest of the world. They say well, if America falls, America doesn't pay attention to Israel, will fall too. Yes, indeed so. Well, God, so thank you very much. I'll certainly God, make sure to get you one. God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. And oh, by the way, have a blessed Rosh Hashanah. I mispronounced that, Rosh Hashanah. Thank you very much. All right, Robert Spencer, check out his website, jihadwatch.org. And we've got our next victim up in the battle box. Uh, I just put on the wrong person. I just clicked on the wrong button. <laughs> I'll get this right, Curtis. I'll get this right. Uh, first time onto the show, Ryan Lovelace. Good afternoon, Ryan. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. I I loved your book, which is called Search and Destroy, Inside the Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, prior to having Robert Spencer on, uh, Curtis and I were talking, that how amazing it is they've got the impeachment threat going up right now in the House. But just days prior, they were attempting to take Brett Kavanaugh down once again with a false New York Times uh, article. And... These are all things that you addressed in your book, how they just tried to rework it, a little phrased a little bit differently, but once again tried to take out Brett Kavanaugh. That's right. And, you know, they're still trying to, even today, we've seen Senator Kamala Harris on the campaign trail call for a formal impeachment inquiry now into Brett Kavanaugh. And I really think all of this is part of what the left has said in its own admission is part of an effort to undermine and attack the legitimacy and authority of the Supreme Court. You know, with Justice Kavanaugh, what the left has said, and particularly Deborah Katz, who is Christine Blasey Ford's attorney, Christine Blasey Ford being the primary accuser of Kavanaugh, what they've said is they want to put an asterisk next to the name of Brett Kavanaugh, a Me Too asterisk, so that folks won't listen to him. And then with Justice Gorsuch, President Trump's first pick for the Supreme Court, the left has said he sits in a stolen seat that belongs to Merrick Garland, President Obama's pick. And with each of those things, we see part of the larger push on behalf of the left to undermine the justices that President Trump has picked, which is all wrapped up in the effort to expand the Supreme Court, too, in the 2020 election and try to grow it to dilute the justices that are appointed by Republican presidents. Well, didn't FDR attempt to do that, too, by appointing more than nine, and that didn't work out too well? There have been court-packing attempts in the past, and they haven't worked out as well. And from the left in particular, we haven't seen this kind of coordinated and organized push before. And one of the real big reasons why is because of this new dark money group called Demand Justice. Demand Justice formed last year just before Justice Kennedy retired, which produced a vacancy that Justice Kavanaugh has filled. And they pledged to spend $5 million opposing whomever President Trump would have selected, which ended up being Justice Kavanaugh. But they're the ones that are responsible for the push on the left to grow the court. They're whipping the 2020 Democratic candidates to fall in line on their far-left agenda to grow the court. And they've even gone so far as to spend tens of thousands of dollars against one candidate in particular, Michael Bennett in New Hampshire, who was pulling at 0%. But they spent the money because they didn't think he was sufficiently to the left because he had actually supported a couple of Trump's picks for the lower courts. And that's really remarkable because it's something we just haven't seen before. You know, it's funny because as I was reading your book, I – I didn't pay much attention to uh, Kavanaugh's rulings or anything else. Um, I'm someone that's an originalist. I'm more in line with Clarence Thomas. Uh, and he's not an original, originalist. He 
believes in precedent, even if that precedent is unconstitutional or blatantly wrong. So you make you wonder why they were against him so hard, except for the fact he was recommended by Trump. And that is a really important question. And, and you know, I think it's something that we watched unfold in really interesting ways throughout his nomination. You know, when he was first nominated, conservatives did have concerns that he um, wasn't quite so willing to be an originalist and textualist in the mold of Justice Scalia. And there were concerns about that, that, you know, Senator Collins, Susan Collins, who voted in support of him and was a crucial vote, seemed to echo when she was saying in her discussions with him, she understood what he was telling her to mean, that it was going to take more than the current five justices who were appointed by Republican president, presidents to overturn a longstanding precedent like Roe versus Wade with the right to obtain an abortion. But I think what we really saw was, in the left's own words, an attempt to go after Judge then Judge Kavanaugh because of Roe versus Wade. Now, Deborah Katz, who was Christine Blasey Ford's attorney, said that her client, Christine Blasey Ford, was motivated in part by Roe versus Wade and the harm that she expected Kavanaugh to do to the right to obtain an abortion in the United States if he was confirmed. And I think we really saw the politics of abortion play out at the federal level with regard to the judiciary in a way we've never seen before, but we're only going to continue to see going forward. And it's something that's grown for years, dating back to Justice Thomas's hearings and all the way through till today. Well, we got a caller in on the line. Let me bring him along because he's a former co-host of mine. So every once in a while he pops in. Cool, Mike, go ahead. You're on the line with uh, Ryan Lovelace, the author of Search and Destroy. Um, Ryan, hello. Um, hi, Annie and uh, Mr. Bennett. Thank you for your service as always. Uh, my question, hey. it, it seems like oftentimes Republicans being the spineless backbone sissies that they are cave to a lot of liberalism. <laughs> Uh, my point, my, I guess here's my question. Um, you seem to have a very good grasp of this, much greater than my, than I do, I can tell you. Um, I oftentimes think uh, Democrats just onslaught with their attacks. Um, could it possibly be they want to manipulate maybe Gorsuch or Kavanaugh into voting with them? Because Republicans seem to want to be accepted. George W. Bush probably the worst president in my lifetime, was the most spineless sissy in the world. He peed him's pants every time, uh, you know, a Democrat said anything bad about him. And then he raised taxes to make it all good. Um, I guess my question here is, do you think this onslaught is maybe to uh, twist and turn some decisions, maybe not ones that have already been made, obviously, but ones down the road as kind of uh, – um, in order to convince these some of these people to uh, do these do this so they'll be liked better or to appease um, to appease the liberals, I think so. You know, I think even by their own words, they tell us that. You know, we've seen Senate Democrats for the first time they wrote to the Supreme Court in a Second Amendment case asking the court to rule in a particular way to meet a political outcome that they wanted to do. You know, typically we don't see the legislative branch ask the judicial branch to reach a particular ruling. They would write a law if they want to accomplish a outcome for their constituents. It's pretty unprecedented. It's something we haven't seen before. And I think the justices are aware of that, too. You know, I had the opportunity to speak with Justice Gorsuch last month now, and one of the things that he told me was about his rules for his law clerks, and there are mainly two of them. And the first one is when people ask you, the public, that want you to come along with them to make something up that isn't in the Constitution, don't do it, don't make something up. 
And when people put pressure on you to do that, and they want to, they'll tell you they won't invite you to their cocktail parties and other things in Washington that are, you know, different places of prominence in that, refer back to the first rule and still don't make stuff up. So I think these justices are cognizant of the ways in which the left attempts to push and pressure them into ruling in a certain way. And I think that's certainly behind all these political attacks on the court. Whether or not the justices hold up over time is something that remains to be seen, because we have seen in the past other justices seem to bend back towards, uh, you know, different political pressures at various points in history. We saw that with the Affordable well, just... Health Care Act. That we did. Go, go, um, go ahead, I, Annie. I just want people to know that, Ryan, you have a, a unique perspective because you are the Supreme Court reporter for the Washington Examiner. So you do get the inside look at what is going on in the court in a very, very unique way. And a matter of fact, I had to crack up because you mentioned in your book Shoshona Weissman. And I kept on looking at my Twitter feed over the last couple of months going, Who, why do I know this name? Because she ends up, she follows me, believe it or not. And as I hit that part of the book where you mentioned her in there, uh, I had to send her out a little message saying, hey, I'm reading about you in the book. I didn't know you followed me. So I realized who she was. But what she did, she was the forefront of, of a new movement that social networks is allowing us to do, allowing us to counter these efforts from the left. You want to explain That's that? That's right. Sure, absolutely. You know, I think that was one of the things that was so different about Justice Kavanaugh's nomination and the controversy from previous ones is that social media was really in many ways weaponized against him. The way these allegations traded up the chain last year, they moved from a blog called The Intercept, uh, where it just was an allegation alleging an incident and was purposely vague, didn't say anything about sexual misconduct, through Senator Feinstein's office who confirmed it, and then the national press never bothered looking into it, the truth or falsity of all these allegations, so they spread on social media. But on the right side of things, people like Shoshana Weissman over at the R Street Institute were able to, in real time, push back against some of these uh, crazy allegations, some of the antics at the actual hearings on Justice Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination by acting in a way to kind of do a rapid response operation on Twitter and other social media to say, actually, that thing that they just said on television isn't true, and here's why. And in that way, this really unfolded and was fought more like a presidential campaign battle than a Supreme Court nomination. Much of this was turning towards presidential politics. And I really think when we look back now, what we kind of see when we see some of the Republicans caught flat-footed in a way that they, you know, that Democrats aren't so much um, when they fight these battles down in the trenches, I think we're beginning to see a shift in people recognizing that these kinds of battles about the courts are going to get more and more political. Right. Well, what I got I a found, question for you. What I found, all right, go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I want to um, mention something that um, Cool Mike said. Well, started to say, and um, my question is this: um, What were your thoughts when um, Chief Justice Roberts sided with, you know, um, Obamacare? And um, do you believe he was blackmailed? Well, I don't know that he was black. I don't know that he was blackmailed. I don't have any evidence to suggest that or reason necessarily to think that. When I saw it, you know, the really frustrating thing to me as a reporter was all of the incorrect reporting that immediately happened. You know, so many folks in my profession rushed out there, rushed outside the court, 
and they were reading the opinions in their hand while they were trying to broadcast on air about what it actually said. And they didn't finish reading it before they told the public that Obamacare hadn't survived. And so many people were left with the impression that it had been struck down. And I think that really is part of the problem here is because so many of us that cover the court failed to do the full due diligence in so many of these stories that people are often led with the wrong impressions. And I wonder whether or not it affects the justices and how they go about doing their work. There's been some real interesting work here in Washington lately about whether or not the press and kind of the new media on the internet has affected the way the Supreme Court justices do their job. So for me personally, I think it's one of those things that, you know, I kind of looked at from that angle as to how can we do what we do in the press better so that it doesn't affect things in a harmful or negative way. But in terms of why and how Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts reached that ruling, I think it's certainly something that's befuddled even uh, many of his allies and many of those that aren't even originalists or textualists, but just concerned with the politics of things. And I think he was looking at the politics of things there by from what, what all of them are saying, too. Well, you know, I, I was amazed at how organized the resistance was without even knowing who the nominee was, uh, because you've got – I'm going to ask you about uh, Brian Fallon and Ryan Halliday. Uh, Holiday, I mean, and why they were so instrumental in the resistance. Well, with Brian Fallon, he was Hillary Clinton's former campaign flack. He was also a former aide to uh, now minority leader Senator Schumer from New York and former Attorney General Eric Holder. So he understands the judicial nominations battle from every angle, from the campaign angle, from the Senate and from the Justice Department. And he is the new leader of this demand justice group, the group that spent $5 million, pledged to spend $5 million before anyone was picked to fight against them. And he's the one now that's really whipping things in 2020 on the left to expand the courts. And he's really the vocal uh, voice and face of that movement to change the way the Supreme Court looks and how it's uh, stocked. And with Ryan Holiday, he's really someone that identified this uh, trading up the chain process by which nonsense becomes nightly news. And he's the one, I think, who has this framework by which we can understand. And I've learned precisely how these allegations went from being things that the Washington Post ignored to things they boomed out there as veritable fact. You know, Christine Blasey Ford first approached the Washington Post in July and they ignored her. Her encrypted messages to the Post I published in full in the back of Search and Destroy so folks can read through them in full context and not have to take splice quotes out of it. But when they first approached, she first approached them, they weren't interested. And she said, then, oh, I've been advised to go to the New York Times or senators. And she later said that she was advised by beach friends who we still don't know who that is. But at the time, the Post ignored her. It was only after these allegations traded up the chain, just in the same way that Ryan Holiday had done with all kinds of different nonsense over the years for different marketing campaigns for corporate clients and big businesses and other political actors, that she was then able to grab attention get into a hearing room on national television and avoid having to face any adversarial questions ever at all. Well, it's, it's, uh, I have done here that with Ryan Halliday, he, he got this down to a science media manipulation involves three levels, the entry point, the legacy media, and then the national press. Uh, he has got it in such a way is that you put the, inkling of the idea out there in the right ear at the right time, and it just goes up the food chain. 
And you end up with someone like the New York Post or the Washington Post, the New York Times, that will then blaze it as absolute God-given truth. And we just saw it recently with that false article in the New York Times. And heaven forbid people forget that the New York Times also denied that the Holocaust was occurring as people were being killed in in uh, the, the concentration camps. No, no, no. You can't. You can't look at the truth. You have to post everything else. And I think what it also all speaks to is a lack, is a pattern of a lack of disclosure on behalf of the Times. You know, with that latest story, the newest allegations, and I'm frankly even reluctant to call them allegations because they're rumors. In this case, the rumor was that there was another accuser and there was another victim of sexual misconduct by Brett Kavanaugh. But it turns out no one's really making the accusation. It's one person who said they think they heard something. And the alleged victim says to her friends reportedly that she doesn't even think this happened. She's been failing to confirm it for a whole year. But none of that was in Time's original story. And also what wasn't in the Times original story that was exerted from a book was that the authors of the book and the reporters of the Times are, have a personal connection to the story. They went to school with Brett Kavanaugh. One author in particular, Robin Pogrebin, was a classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's at Yale as an undergraduate at the same time as he was. And I think that's one of the most important things about doing this kind of work to investigate sexual misconduct claims is to remove yourself from the story. But instead, what they did was they inserted themselves into it. And it's something that I think the Times didn't do in advance of publication was the kind of due diligence to make sure that this wasn't a personal vendetta being carried out against a former classmate, but an actual work of journalism. And I think it's part of the problem of how we ended up here and helps to explain the way things traded up the chain, just as you were describing. Can I ask a question to Ryan, Annie? Go ahead, Mike. Uh, um, when when we're talking the the exact topic we're talking about, um, I forget who it was. We had a guest on, and I was I, I was co-hosting for you, Annie, but I uh, I was filling in for uh, Curtis. He was doing the the book uh, the book tour. Um, why is it Republican? Where where's the where's the Republican groups that just uh, pour money into this and attack these people. And, uh, you, you know, there's so much uh, like this new, this Greta, the new, uh, the, the, the new poster child. She's out there bashing every country but China, of course, and we all know why. But my point is, where's the $5 million for to fight these other groups and to, uh, you know, to tear them down from the other side? It just, see, it just seems like... Uh, so many, uh, so many Republicans are part of the deep state, and it, it it just seems like they have no backbone whatsoever. Antifa, you know, Antifa's attacking people, and nobody attacks back. I mean, where where is why? What is wrong with? Uh, I, I mean, people like us will stand up for what we believe in. Where are the other ones? They're all worried about you know. Uh, you mentioned the cocktail parties, or I mean, where are our people? It's a good question. And, you know, for the longest time, the group on the right that had kind of been responsible for trying to organize around the courts was the Judicial Crisis Network. And they had existed since the Bush days and had seen some of the ways in which um, in the aftermath of the Clinton years, um, Republicans were having problems trying to get some of these judges through. But there's lately been a new group that's formed called the Article 3 Project. That was formed by the counsel for Senator Grassley, who is the chairman of the committee that vetted Justice Kavanaugh. And they've just formed their brand new and they're um, kind of still growing in terms of funding. But their main project is going to be just what you're describing, pushing back against the left fighting 
um, all of these Supreme Court nominees and President Trump at every turn, and they're going to kind of, in their own words, take the gloves off because they don't think anyone else is. So it seems like there's some changes there where there could actually be some new groups that are going to attempt to do this for the first time. But in the past, we just haven't seen it. Because we saw that leaked letter. It could, If President would have uh, uh, nominated Annie Ubellis as the Supreme Court, we saw that letter. The only thing that needed to be filled in was the name. I mean, the accusations were all going to be the same, whether it was Curtis, me, or Annie. <laughs> I mean, just send it off to the printer or to the public, fill in the name, and, you know, they're a rapist or they're a racist. or I mean, this is insanity. And, of course, there's that base of Democrats that are so stupid that they're, they'll, they believe anything. That's true. <laughs> And I think, you know, the judges that are on President Trump's Supreme Court shortlist are aware of that now. I don't think they were before the Kavanaugh controversy unfolded that they were going to be attacked in such a political way because many of them aren't political animals themselves. That's one of the things that made Justice Kavanaugh different, made him attractive to the White House, was that he understood all that, having been a former Supreme Court clerk, worked at big law in town and been a judge in D.C. for over a decade. But he also had worked in the White House on judicial nominations. He worked on Robert's nomination, so he would have had a better understanding of all of that. But he was also an enemy of the Clintons from the Lewinsky days. And now, I think at this point in time, we're seeing that all these other judges are going to begin to take precautions so that when they do get to that point where they're under attack, they can perhaps fend it off better. And that was one of the things I tried to do in reporting out Search and Destroy was see whether any of them had changed their minds. And what I found was all the judges that were on President Trump's shortlist, none of them removed themselves, said, I don't want to do this anymore after the Kavanaugh controversy, specifically because of it. Now, younger lawyers that are at the Justice Department working elsewhere that have an interest in public service, they are both publicly and privately more concerned about this thing because they don't want to walk into a situation where they're going to be accused or their family's going to face scrutiny or any number of other things could happen simply because they want to serve their country. Well, you know, there is a fear of being pushed into the public eye uh, that takes a personal toll. And what was different is, is that where Bork stepped back, you know, we now have the term, you know, you've been Borked. Um, we've seen where other judges have withdrawn their name. Kavanaugh had the strength and the temerity to say, I'm not stepping back. I'm going to, I'm in here for the fight. And when people see that and they see their life being thrown around the way that you know Kavanaugh had his done and still is having done people are hesitant but what was different was is that you know this guy Brian Fallon said that he, they needed to build muscle memory so that you know in the future we're going to remember what they did to us and just maybe we won't step forward and serve yeah that's their whole yes, purpose think- isn't it it is and I think that's really important what you pointed out because when he's saying that what he's also saying is It's not just about beating down Brett Kavanaugh now. It's about learning how to do this for the future so that whenever we do really have the opportunity to get someone and whenever we can take punches and ruin someone's reputation, we remember how to do this. We learn how to do this, and we don't waste this opportunity to learn how to really go after someone in this way. And that's really remarkable that he would feel comfortable admitting it. But that was really one of the things that I found so interesting in reporting this book out was just how many folks on the left felt comfortable explaining just the ways in which they did all of this. And I think one of the big reasons why was because of the way the Believe the Woman narrative took root and took hold in the middle of the Me Too moment and environment that we've seen unfolding in the last few years. You know, with the Believe the Woman narrative, 
being something that pressured Republicans to not ask adversarial questions, they turned over their questioning to Rachel Mitchell when they were facing Christine Blasey Ford. Christine Blasey Ford only ever faced sympathetic questions from Senate Democrats and from Rachel Mitchell because of that pressure to believe the woman. You know, Michael Avenatti's accuser, Julie Swetnick, faced adversarial questions from a journalist alone without her lawyers. And that's one of the reasons why her allegations crumbled where Christine Blasey Ford didn't right away. Because when that Believe the, narr- Believe the Woman narrative takes hold, that muscle memory that the left has created is able to flex its muscle in a way that it couldn't if you know, responsible actors in the Senate and actual journalists did their jobs. Now, I've got 12 pages of notes that I took, and this is really <laughs> computer type. <laughs> it, 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 it's so interesting because the attorney for uh, the accuser, Michael Bromwich, actually stage managed how many reporters from what you know periodics were they allowed in, how many cameras, and how long, who's asking the questions. He stage managed the whole thing, and yet despite how well he tried to stage manage it, Trump administration put together a team of Don McGahn, John Kyle, Kerrick Kupnick, uh, Zena Bash, he put together a team that was that knew how to fight, knew what was needed to help protect Kavanaugh. So, you know, Trump administration has to get a huge kudos for getting this nomination through. But they did. And, and you know, in, in doing that, too, I think they all learned the lessons of what Justice Thomas had to fight uh, much more single handedly. You know, it was interesting to listen to White House counsel Don McGahn, former White House counsel now, talk about how, you know, he came of age in the law and really got interested in the law as a result uh, of the Bork fight. And then he was coming of age as a lawyer during Justice Thomas's fight. So he had some idea of what was going to happen. And then in the final preparation for Justice Kavanaugh ahead of the hearings, uh, Mark Paoletta, who is um, a lawyer for Mike Pence, uh, counsel to Vice President Mike Pence, and had worked with uh, Justice Thomas in the past, really had kind of in, insisted to judge, then Judge Kavanaugh to take the same approach Thomas did in don't go after the woman, but view the committee as your adversary because the committee is the one doing the search and destroy process. And I think that's when we saw Judge Kavanaugh really say, you know, you've replaced advice and consent with search and destroy. He was addressing the committee. And then he also sort of shouted out that Thomas line of this has become a national disgrace. And I think the team that was built there by the Trump administration and by so many of those folks who knew Justice Kavanaugh was kind of a culmination of everything leading to this moment where Republicans had been expectant that something would happen. I don't think they ever knew that it would be this you know, vitriolic and bad and nearly violent. But I think it was something where they'd been preparing for a long time because they could see where this was headed. That they did. And the book is an excellent, excellent read, Search and Destroy Inside the Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. Like I said, I got 12 tight uh, pages. But you know, the thing, too, is that the, the left was eating their own, too, because you had some of the people that knew Kavanaugh that had, as attorneys and, and as professors – that came to his defense, and boy, were they bitten down. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and particularly women lawyers. Most of the people that the left went after, especially among its own ranks, were women that were willing to stand up and say, you know, I know this man. I may not share his particular approach to the law. I may not share his particular political views or the administrations that he's worked for, their views. 
and what he might do with regard to issues of abortion or other things. But I know him to be a good judge and the rest of it. And it was interesting the way in which women suffered more at the hands of um, the leftist activists than others did. And I think that's really all wrapped up in the abortion politics by their own admission. And I think it's something that was new and unique to this last time around. And I have to think also that it weighed on Justice Kavanaugh's mind because we've seen since he's joined the court, he's the first justice to have an all-female clerk team in his first year. All of his clerks are women, and I think that was something that was a tacit acknowledgement of what women who were willing to stand by him and support him had gone through. You know, I, I love Justice Thomas. I really do. And he had a comment about it when he was uh, addressing a dinner as a speaker, and he, he had his Spartacus moment. He had the temerity to call out Cory Booker, which, you know, gained a good laugh. But these justices are being attacked. Even though they're, they've been confirmed, they're still under attack. They are. And Justice Thomas is really someone that's been under attack for the better part of three decades now. It's really interesting and remarkable here in Washington that the African-American History Museum, when it opened, didn't have a, you know, a dedicated component to the highest ranking at the time, African-American official in Washington, after President Obama left office, being Justice Thomas. And yet when it did decide to mention him, it only mentioned him in the context of Anita Hill and the allegations surrounding his hearings, not his 25 years on the bench and the important opinions and rulings that he had had. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, he in particular has taken the approach that he has to not ask questions at arguments and other things. But we've seen him now too sort of define um, some of his own narrative as others have tried to attack him. And there's going to be, um, you know, documentaries and things coming out there. And I think the justices on the right that have been appointed by Republican presidents are going to be more vocal. You know, we've seen Justice Gorsuch has just written a book. Um, you know, Justice Thomas has been a little bit more vocal. And now next month in October now, we're going to be seeing Justice Kavanaugh perhaps speaking for the first time at length at a Federalist Society event here in D.C. And I think it's part of an effort to kind of speak up and speak out in a way that Supreme Court justices just haven't done in the past. Well, Ryan, it has been a pleasure having you on. It is a great book, and there's a link to it on the show page here. So when people uh, listen in the archives, they just need to click on it, and they can go to Search and Destroy Inside the Campaign Against Brett Kavanaugh. Thank you for joining us. And people can also find you over at the Washington Examiner. Thanks for having me. It's been Take awesome. Care. Wow. Ryan Lovely. What a, what a check, great check guest, Annie. Man, you just keep hitting grand slams. This guy was like better than the last guy I said was a grand slam. <laughs> well, to follow that up, returning to our show, a retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, and I always mispronounce your name, so always forgive me, please. Um, <laughs> I got Sergeant Sangari. Yeah, you're on it, Ann. It's good. <laughs> All right, Colonel. <laughs> oh my goodness, we had Robert Spencer on, so this is now part two of of the Middle East and the attack. Uh, I got to ask you a question because you know Middle East politics, and and you recently came back from a uh, conference over there in Israel. What the heck is going on with their government? You know, Netanyahu lost by one seat to have gain the majority. And he can't seem to form a government. 
I do not understand Israeli politics. Um, because uh, a lot of Americans don't understand how parliamentary systems work. Um, you know, when the uh, U.S. Uh, or, or forefathers uh, overthrew the British government, one thing they decided was to completely change the form of government and not go with the parliamentary system. It is probably one of the worst forms of governments you could work with. Unfortunately for the Israelis, they've not only adapted the form of uh, the parliamentary system, they've also adapted a British-style parliamentary system, which has made it very difficult for them to be able to function. Um, the problem Netanyahu runs into, and when I was in Israel, we were actually there to also monitor the Israeli elections, uh, is that he's made a lot of internal enemies within his own Likud party. Besides the issues that he's dealing with with the investigations, and the major investigation that still hasn't come through the pipeline, is uh, as far as uh, sales of uh, uh, submarines to the Egyptians without really having the national security apparatus structure being aware of what was happening through that process uh, has put him in a position where he just cannot formulate a coherent government together. Um, now, the president makes a call in that system as to who should go first to try to formulate the government. I think if Netanyahu had waited and allowed Gantz to go first, Gantz probably would have failed in that uh, form of a government to be able to have a majority-capable, consolidated government to be formed moving forward. It would have given an opportunity for Netanyahu to probably survive the possible um, uh, move towards a third election. But I think with him going first, if he cannot formulate a government, and it's possible that he will not be able to, either Likud would have to push far right with somebody else coming in and taking his position, or Netanyahu would uh, completely be out of politics. And uh, you'll probably take a look at a uh, third election with Netanyahu not even being the lead for the Likud when it comes to the uh, election process. Well, you've got a prime minister in there. You also have a president. Um, the president's name is Rivlin. Uh, he's been calling for them to get together to form this government. But I don't think Gantz, who's the from the uh, Blue and White Party, I don't think he's going to budge an inch. What's your your impression? Well, well, he can't uh, because for the first time in the elect- uh, Israeli elections, also. The uh, unified uh, uh, party that has the uh, Arabs within it, a um, um, number of those Arabs came out and actually uh, put their support towards a prime minister for Israel. Um, that completely uh, turns the entire process upside down where uh, you have the various different ethnical groups that are Jewish groups that have come from other places, from Europe, from uh, Africa, other locations uh, that are currently residing in the, in uh, Israel, completely flipping as to whether or not they're willing to support that party. Uh, so it it changes the formula and the map. Uh, our our initial assessment we look, when we looked at this election that took place on the 17th of September was that it's possible that 
Likud would have to move to the far right with possibly Gilad Erdan being maybe the next lead. And I think that neither uh, the current Likud party as uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu being the lead and also the the formulation of the various different parties that are currently supporting the opposition are going to be able to formulate within the system that Israel has a cohesive government because you could literally have last-minute changes uh, inside of those parties that actually collapses the party itself and doesn't allow for a uh, consolidated government to move forward. Well, I, as I was listening to the news and trying to understand what was going on, I understand there's now a large Arab component that never existed before in the government. Um, are they going to play sides against each other, or are they going to try to form a coalition? Where do you see them stepping into this? No, and well, that, that's what I was referencing. They they do have a coalition, and some of the members within that coalition, for the first time in the history of Israel, have actually uh, stated that they are willing to support a uh, um, uh, endorse a prime minister. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't bode well if you're the prime minister, possible future prime minister, that they endorse it. Because um, in the example that I just gave you, the the Jews that are from the former Soviet Union, we, call, we can refer to them as Russian Jews. That's not a technical term, but for us to better understand from an American perspective, as soon as they saw that happening, they said we're not going to be, uh, you know, holding our votes in support of, the whatever coalition government that uh, the opposition party puts together. So there's a lot of internal fights that are taking place in Israel because of it. It is a very um, uh, parliamentary systems are very volatile systems, uh, and to really be able to hold them together, uh, you have to be very skilled as far as being able to get votes, um, uh, formulate coalitions. And moving forward, that's one of the reasons Benjamin Netanyahu has been so good, really, is about winning elections and holding coalitions together. Uh, otherwise, as far as governance is concerned, that's a different issue. On the governance side, he has had multiple uh, setbacks um, and internal issues that have also affected the economy of uh, Israel. But at the end of the day, whether you're in the United States, living in Alabama, or you're in Israel, economy drives the, uh, drives the train. Well, you mentioned economy, and we've had the attack on the uh, Saudi oil fields, which we're tracing back, I believe, to Iran. <coughs> Excuse me. And we have a dynamic coming in here. Um, the Saudis are saying, hey, listen, the best way to control Iran is to do it financially. Uh, you hear other calls for we're sending more troops over. Um, what do you see going on with this situation over there? Uh, well, we we actually – talked about this in the Near East going back to 2015. And in 2015, we posted an article on the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement saying who speaks for Islam, who should speak for Islam. And this has been an internal fight between Shia Islam and Sunni Islam and who's going to be the dominant when it comes to uh, the global presence as far as being a speaker on behalf of Islam. And uh, the Sunni states have across the board failed absolutely uh, uh, dramatically when it comes to trying to be that lead. If you think about it, a majority of the 
historical and key uh, religious institutions uh, are actually within the borders of Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia in itself uh, has never been able to project itself as being a key figure that can speak on behalf of Islam when it comes to what world politics would like. Uh, You know, in the Christian faith, we have multiple different Christian denominations, but uh, uh, there's one central figure that everybody kind of knows uh, when he speaks, speaks on behalf of what the Judeo-Christian ideology is, and that's the Pope. The Pope has an opportunity to stand on stage at the UN. He has an opportunity to visit with world leaders, both uh, Christian and non-Christian, uh, and uh, is able to somewhat project what we view as a possibility of what the Judeo-Christian ethics are. Islam doesn't have that figure. Uh, you can't name them. Um, so because of that, this internal fight always takes place. And uh, currently, Iran has shown its ability to be really the lead because Iran was the first nation to go through a revolution and establish the Islamic Republic even all the Sunni states that came afterwards with all the revolutions, internal uh, turmoil with the Arab Spring, all of them geared towards trying to duplicate what Iran did within its borders, uh, and they failed to do so. Uh, majority of the Arab Spring nations ended up being in chaos, and that is really uh, uh, attributed to Saudi's inability to be able to have any influence over its own Sunni leadership when it comes from a religious, theological beliefs. Same thing with uh, Turkey. Turkey has not been able to be that lead, that role, although they're a NATO partner, and uh, they are very uh, strong from what they sit geographically when it comes to their ties to the EU and the Middle East. So Iran has been able to, through this process, show its ability now, Iran does use terror, just like the Sunni states do, but Iran uses it for the survival of its regime and uses it to get the uh, leverage in order to be able to negotiate with the West on issues that are more state-driven than rather than theological-driven. Um, however, from a Sunni side, anything that has come forward that has used terror in this case, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, Iraq, has been specifically driven towards trying to bring an end of this world fight in order to establish a global Islamic jihad. Iran doesn't believe that that's even possible. It's more practical when it comes to how it uses religious terror in this case in order to be able to get the polities of the world to come to the table in order to strike a nuclear slash economic agreement with it. Well, you know, we're looking at the situation between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and Iran needs something to coalesce their populace around because we hear murmurings that the populace is getting restless, that there may be a potential for another civil revolt. Uh, So are the mullahs using this to say, hey, listen, we're being attacked. We need you to stand firm with us, with the Revolutionary Guard. Is it? Are they stirring up trouble just so that they can retain power over the people? Uh, somewhat they do. That's part of it. Uh, but the other part is that Iran has always seen itself as 
being um, a regime that is always being attacked. Uh, it doesn't see it doesn't see the rural polities as being favorable to it. Uh, it feels always that it has to fight against all the world polities in order to be able to win his right. It's like that little guy on the on the uh, you know playground that believes that you know I always have to fight the big dog in order to prove that exists. In this case, world polities told him when they struck a deal with it that you don't have to do that. Uh, for us to be able to work with you. The problem is Iran doesn't know how to answer the question of its revolution. For the past 40 years, it really never understood why did we revolt? Why did we overthrow the previous regime, establish an Islamic uh, uh, republic, and what was the outcome? What were we supposed to achieve? Because technically, without even going through a revolution, they could have maybe gotten to this point. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's an internal struggle that Iran has. The way Iran controls its populace is the hardliners allow for a moderate to be the president of Iran. This way they're able to turn around and tell the moderates, look, you do have a voice. That voice is actually the leadership, the presidential leadership of of the nation. Uh, it's uh, elected through you guys. So uh, that's the face of the... Iranian regime when it comes to what it does externally, when it comes to dealing with the world politics, in this case, even when the uh, uh, Iran sat across the nations of the world uh, when the Security Council instructed a nuclear deal, there was the moderates that were put into the lead. This is how the, um, the extremists, the hardliners in Iran, are able to pacify somewhat uh, the Iranian um, um, populace when it comes to them wanting to see a change in government. Now, the, the uh, hardliner runs the country, don't get me wrong, but at least it feeds the narrative to the people that we are, um, we are allowing you to have a voice, to have a say. Uh, and because that moderate type of an individual exists in the government structure of Iran, it's able to at least control the people. But with the economic pressures taking place with the younger generation of Iranians, it's becoming much more difficult for them to do so. I don't think I'll live to see that overturned, but (laughs) maybe one day. Um, But we're throwing into the mix here um, the... um, Add in China, because China is now making a move worldwide. They're in Africa, they're in South America, and they're in the uh, uh, Central America. They're in the Caribbean. They're they're everywhere, and now they're partnering, as I understand, with Iran. Well, I mean, uh, China has always been uh, partnered with Iran. Uh, if it wasn't for China, under the sanctions, Iran would never be able to collect at least on the uh, interest for its oil and money that was sitting in their banking systems frozen, not being able to be shared because of the sanctions that were applied against it. So uh, China um, has had a 100-year plan. They're way ahead of that 100-year plan. Um, And, uh, you know, you can't blame China given the fact that if 
we had a nation uh, that was not called United States, whatever you want to name it, and it had the population that China had, I guarantee you our citizenry would be asking for us to be a global dominance too. The problem China has is that inherently at its core, the regime in China that ended up taking the lead to execute this 100-year plan is a dictatorship. Um, within itself, it is own structures, be a non-capital type of a, a system, being a socialist system. Long time ago, the Chinese businessmen realized that, you know, this structure may not prove beneficial as we take these larger steps to become a global dominance throughout the world. So hence Hong Kong pops up. The Chinese businessmen who were in the apparatus of the government of uh, China realized, you know, I can take a lot of the money and that exists currently, possibility of creation of wealth, and I can store it in, in countries that are capitalistic and can support my endeavors in the long run. So what ends up happening is you have a Chinese leader that is in charge of the manufacturing textile industry that is government-owned. He's getting cheap slave labor at no cost, building things for him, and in this case could be the political prisoners. He exports that through Hong Kong, selling it to the Chinese government as a possibility of expansion of our economic footprint, uh, establishes his relatives, in this case in the United States, who are going to manage that, uh, that manufacturing textile capability that might be brought here for the U.S. consumer, uh, ties it to American businesses and European businesses through Hong Kong, and takes literally China's wealth and launders it through Hong Kong into the United States. The problem China has, a lot of what it originally had as possible economic basis by which it was going to build the infrastructures internal to China, expand its capability, was literally wealth that was laundered out of China into various different global markets. China still moving forward with this dominance of Southeast Asia and all other possible markets in the future has a problem. Its main historical wealth is built on a uh, quick stand. That's why China uh, ends up losing quickly in these type of tariff wars and these economic wars because what it lost originally through these markets, and it looks at Hong Kong as a hub to move money rather than a state within a state, it ends up uh, taking hits uh, when we put tariffs against them, uh, which are double to what the possible uh, negative might be for the United States. Uh, China has to work with individuals like Iran. China has to work through the Shanghai Corporation Organizational capability to expand that footprint. Uh, the current POTUS has understood that, and he's taken steps that has tried to further bog down China economically by tying down their ability on sunk costs in other nations. As an example, uh, because China goes into Pakistan, it goes in and literally buys majority of the political leadership in the Pakistan parliament. 
uh, through Chinese companies and Chinese development projects. When we decide we're going to put pressure on Pakistan by ensuring it has an unstable economy, how do we do it? We put sanctions on Iran. We told India, go ahead and uh, develop the port of Charbahar for Iran because we are going to remove that one port from the sanctions so that Iran can build a railhead into Afghanistan so we can bypass the ability of having to work through Karachi, really collapsing the economy of uh, Pakistan. What China has put in to manage those leaderships in Pakistan now becomes a sunk cost for them because they only know how to operate from a socialist dictatorship ideology. They don't know how to use the free markets to give themselves an out when it comes to these political maturations and steps that are taken to expand their footprint, whether it be in uh, Asia, Middle East, or other places. They're starting to learn a little bit how to maybe counter us. As an example, when we hit them in uh, North Korea, with a relationship or Southeast Asia, or when we put sanctions on them that are affecting them. When it comes to their Belt and Road Initiative, they tried to move into Syria, as an example, with the Syrian populations that were historically tied to them to try to get their hands on $400 billion of reconstruction that might allow them to have a footprint in our backyard, in this case, in Syria. So these are the type of global fights that are taking place with China, I think if we keep to what we are doing currently, China would have to go through an internal change of leadership, not a regime change, but change of leadership to be able to allow us to better negotiate with them and hopefully stop them from this global dominance that they think they can achieve through sheer force using their companies and their their populations. Well, now, throw into this mix now how much... Uh, real estate they own here in the United States. How many ports do they actually own here? Uh, other facilities that are, 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 I'm trying to think of the proper word, are major facilities here in the United States. I'm just wondering why they haven't pulled that card yet. Well, I mean, they've, they've done it. They don't need it. Uh, they're holding that for possible future conflicts. Um, I'll give you as an example. Uh, when I told you when they started moving their family members, these are generational family members. These generational family members now become part of the fabric of the society that they live in. You have second and third generation Chinese that initially came here. They didn't come here because they wanted to immigrate here. They came here because it was part of the Chinese under year plan to get them here, to establish them here, to tie them to these governmental uh, 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 support companies to be able to uh, have them to where uh, the linkages are historic with them. So when it comes to their politics, even though in this case they're American citizens, they tend to lean more towards China's uh, goal as to what it wants to achieve, uh, whether it be with the United States or in the region. As an example, uh, it was uh, these type of historical communities uh, that were the reason that uh, in uh, 2012, when the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi gave a speech at the Brookings Institute, where he presented China's vision of future uh, in an address he had titled uh, New Power Relations, which we in the Near East wrote about, uh, he looked at how China and the United States are clearly divergent 
and will um, the, the the ideology of this divergency can be uh, uh, supported by trying to enable the two nations to avoid the type of friction that may spark a global conflict in the future. The majority of the individuals who pushed the previous administration to support that initiative retreat took took hold of and started working towards until the current borders came in were these individuals who were from those historical families that were tied in that had had a power base on monetary base and had a say in American politics. Uh, the Puget Sound, where I used to be there at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, one of my uh, tour assignments before I did my 20 years and retired, both sides of the Puget Sound long time ago, China started developing the purchase of those pieces of property to include placing Chinese-owned businesses and Chinese-owned uh, infrastructures there. Uh, now, why is that important? China, in its 100-year plan, looked at the possibility if we ever get into a shooting war with the United States going back years, not decades we're talking about. If I own the future sun, what else do I own? Well, for the U.S., every piece of railhead that we have has to go through the Puget Sound still. So if there's a shooting war in Southeast Asia, that's the port and the position where we actually push all our stuff through the West Coast in order to drive into Southeast Asia or Asia for a conflict, military conflict. Well, the main choke point that you need to push everything through through the Puget Sound is owned by China because China a long time ago looked at it as a strategic choke point for possibility being able to have effects on U.S. policy, even when it comes to how it uses its force structures in uh, areas of conflict. With today's technology, if I decide to push my uh, special units through those ports, the Chinese would have advanced knowledge of who these people are, where they're going, and what type of operations they're doing. In Kuwait, as an example, when I was there as a director of host nation affairs, China pushed with the Kuwaiti government although the U.S. had a uh, DCA with them, a uh, agreement, force-on-force uh, force agreement and support. Uh, China built a, a manufacturing base for uh, uh, ammunition factory for the Kuwaitis. And where did they put it? They put it right next to the two major golf balls, that we call them, because they look like golf balls, that are the strategic communication nodes that everything that we discussed uh, in our operations when we fought in Afghanistan and Iraq was fed through those nodes directly back to the states. So it gives it an opportunity to literally be from a stone's throw away from the strategic assets that the U.S. uses to manage its uh, operations when it comes to CENTCOM within that entire area of operation. So this is how China has moved into territories, even in Israel that I just came back from. This is going to be the first possible year that the largest number of tourists to Israel are going to be Chinese tourists. Eventually, some of those tourists will settle in Israel. The port of Haifa currently is being developed by the Chinese. And then two, three generations from now, those individuals that settled there came in initially as tourists now become part of the fabric of that state, and they become part of the voting bloc. 
in that fabric of that state, with still ties to China mainland and possibly still the Chinese ideology when it comes to what it wants to do over a long run on this 100-year plan. It is scary to know that our security is that flimsy at this point, because when you look even to the point of immigration that you talk about and birthright citizenship, you know, you had the maternity tourism going on, which, you know, we've been trying to stop. And it also puts an importance on birthright citizenship uh, in cases like this, because now you have the women go home with these babies and they have dual citizenship which means that they can't be denied entry back into the United States when that child is an adult. Well, that was pushed by, um, I mean, when we're talking about these programs, these programs are not just some um, rinky-dinky operation that was being run. These are programs that were sponsored by government officials out of China. Um, And uh, a lot of these children are tied to Chinese families. Look, Uh, The Chinese leadership knows how to expand its footprint. Uh, Australia, which is a key uh, figure for us when it comes to a territory that we need in order to be able to fight against this menace in the future, uh, Chinese leadership uh, has uh, five family members that are staying within uh, Australia itself. They're part of the fabric of the Australian um, government, and they have... They do advise uh, individuals within the Australian government. Uh, the same company, there's a holding company that when Near East, my company, we looked at what was happening with the Burma genocide that was tied to the genocide itself, which is a Chinese uh, conglomerate, is the same one that was pulling iron ore out of Australia. Um, China knows how to use its populace and how to use its companies to leverage itself for a strategic battle. Uh, we don't look at it sometimes that way, but China looks at it. We may not have as much influence on our companies, but China has direct influence given the fact that every single company within the structure of this type of a dictatorship uh, will be beholden to what the government wants it to do as an advantage for its wants and desires. The reason why when I was in the military, we decided not to use the uh, um, the sticks that you would put into your computers to download information anymore because when China was selling those on the market, a lot of the ones that were targeted to be sold on U.S. multi-bases, uh, even in the Walmarts close to the U.S. multi-bases, were the ones that were built with specific targeting requirements in them to be able to, if in case, and multi-person bought it, to be used in the U.S. computers or multi installations to steal data and information. So uh, China knows how to move forward within this fight uh, and is able to do it because it's much more controlled at the governmental level. Um, But our benefit is the fact that because of how corrupt initially the um, Chinese leadership were, decades ago and how the systems they set up are more tied towards corruption rather than free market flow, it has given us the opportunity to really squeeze them where they're not able to maybe develop new markets off of a different plan in order to be able to maybe counter what we do. Annie, can you ask a question? 
Oh, go ahead, Curtis. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, do you think it's possible ever that the United States would allow China to gain military military and uh, technological superiority over us? Uh, well, we did that under the Clinton administration because what we did was, uh, you know, uh, prior to President Clinton sending all the technology over to uh, China, China couldn't even do uh, airfield seizures. That was a specific type of a mission requirement that only our rangers were able to do. However, without sharing that information with them, it gave them a technological edge and a uh, operational edge that mirrored to an extent what we used to do. Now, we're still the strongest military in the world, but, uh, you know, look, uh, take a look at the F-35. F-35 plans were hacked by the Chinese. As you take a look at the uh, Chinese aircraft systems that came out of the uh, after the F-35, they're pretty much the same plans and the same matrix blueprint that, uh, you know, we use for our F-35. So China using cyber attacks, capabilities, um, individuals are loyal to China, uh, are able to gain an, at least an advantage uh, on, on us. Now, the only one that I think still... Uh, uh, would be a nation that could give them a leverage uh, would be Japan. But uh, Japan and China being uh, adversaries, uh, Japan hasn't offered uh, in any which way to develop a possible Chinese future weapon systems in order to be able to, uh, one, uh, allow China to be as competitive on the global stage as the U.S., but two, at the same time, if we provide intel information to them or technology today, not when we did it under the Clinton, it is very much possible that the Chinese would think that any type of technology we offer the Chinese, we could always have a back door to it. That means we could really, from a, um, uh, from a cyber capability, uh, ensure that if they ever tried to do, use those weapons against us, that would not be able to operate the way that uh, the Chinese soldier on the ground would like it to operate. Um, so th- it's, that's just the reality. This is this is a discussion that has to be done between various different administrations. I wouldn't be surprised if in the future maybe whoever becomes a POTUS, uh, if they have a good relationship with the Chinese that is different than the current POTUS has where he's pressuring them economically, that that individual may decide to share that type of technology. Well, Mike, before you jump in, I want to ask this because I I read recently that the government is now starting to take a lot of their data and loading it up to the cloud, which would be run by Google and Amazon. Uh, that in itself had me worried. But now when you throw in the Chinese factor, uh, should we be really concerned about how our government is handling the storage of its data? Uh, cyber war is the uh, really the next uh, uh, most complicated uh, uh, space that we have to fight these type of fights. Um, U.S. systems by law to an extent are not designed to be able to counter it. 
Um, like I said, uh, the Chinese are able to steal the F-35 plants. Okay, that's one of the most sophisticated weapon systems we have. Lockheed Martin could not stop that from happening. Now, imagine, uh, you know, the other infrastructure systems that the U.S. uses, uh, having basically the information uh, that, uh, you know, we assume to be secure, but possibly uh, having breach points into them, given the fact that the companies that load this information secure it, if they want to ever operate in China, would have to somewhat um, allow China to have at least a means and ways if they want for their national security requirements to either affect or put a better term. And I'm walking a fine line here because there's a lot of things that I hope you can read between the lines. That's why I'm talking um, in generalities here uh, that allow them to uh, maybe if they want to have somebody for security measures, let's say, uh, investigated that that data would be available to them. And it would be these companies that are now with agreements, memorandum of understanding agreement, um, available to offer that information to them. And Google already has that. And that's the scary part. Well, like I said, uh, you know, there's some things that you just have to read through the lines. And I know I'm talking more generalities, but I, I think their listeners would understand exactly what we're, we're referencing. Look, it's, it's a reality. This is a competition between uh, global uh, capabilities. China wants to be the global lead, and it will do anything at its disposal to include conduct uh, genocide in Burma in order to be the lead. And it will use even Huawei to do that. So um, it's this is a type of a menace you're you're fighting against. And the only way you could stop it is that you get to go for the head of the snake. In this case, the head of the snake would be, or the dragon, let's say. In this case, we're talking about China, would be a change within the current leadership in China that will allow us to at least work with someone else within the Chinese government that understands you cannot just burn through every major society, every major continent uh, at a whim. Look, we helped you become the second largest uh, economy in the world. If I was advising the Chinese, this is how I would tell them. Your job is you want to be the second largest economy in the world, then you need to share the burden of developing the nations around you, especially in Southeast Asia. Not just for your benefit, though, for the benefit of those nations. That means the costs that you have have to be used for development, for positive, for world economy, not for development, for the positive, for your footprint expansion. And if China figures that out, I think the U.S. will be willing to work with it without having to go through these extreme measures. Annie. You were talking about your concerns about um, our security, um, our information up in the clouds being secure. But I'm, I'm concerned about the fact that there was a Chinese national who was able to breach security down at uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. And um, I think she was carrying, like, cell phones, passports, and uh, computer drives and malware 
How does that happen? Well, it happens because people get trained to do cyber operations and collect data. Uh, and there's a there's a big market for those for that information. Um, look, and the other piece that China is pushing, I would even um, recommend you look at what is happening with the uh, with as an example with the bitcoins, uh, with Facebook trying to develop its own uh, digital currency. These digital currencies, uh, we have a hard time tracking them. Uh, to see how they're being used, where they're being used. New regulations are being pushed out there, but the reason the digital currency uh, was used and expanded by state actors was because it's a great way to destroy um, economies of nations. Uh, currently, the U.S. Uh, dollar is still the reserve currency of the world. Uh, Digital currency was created by state nation supports. It, it wasn't initially created for this requirement, but states picked up on it and started expanding it with other currencies that they introduced into the market and pushed for in order, one, to be able to move money, two, laundered money, three, be able to hide money because, you know, the regulate, regulations became much more difficult as far as how you could hide and move money, especially with the 314As and Bs and the Patriot Act, it was in a way to pressure the Federal Reserve to undercut it. If the Federal Reserve does not have the capability of controlling U.S. currency and supporting it to be the reserve currency of the world, in this case, the last resort that we have in the U.S. right now is for the current purpose to devalue the dollar to allow us to be more competitive on the global market and squeeze China more with these uh, tariffs, then the digital currency was created to completely undermine state control of currency. With that said, that means in a heartbeat, if tomorrow the digital currency becomes a viable currency that somebody uses, U.S. dollar no longer is a reserve dollar for, uh, re- reserve currency. For all markets, what ends up happening, your your economy's gone in a heartbeat. You don't have to worry about a stock market crash or anything else. Your money because basically becomes no value because the digital currency has replaced it. It's no longer in control of, uh, of Federal Reserve. The digital currency is now in controlled by few individuals, uh, companies, and uh, families on the global market. A lot of those individuals are also tied to Chinese efforts um, against the U.S. to try to not just slow but possibly break and affect U.S. economy over the next uh, two decades. You know, I was curious as to why a lot of these Bitcoins were coming out, not just from the United States, but had founders that were based in the Middle East and in Russia. Well, you just gave me a whole new look on on the economy. Correct. The Middle East is – there's a lot of these owners that are in the Middle East, but behind them, if you uh, unpeel that onion, there's a Chinese fellow standing behind them. Tied to the Chinese uh, Chinese government. 
man, if we're not careful, we do not get a president elected in 2020 that will defend us like Trump is. We're in a, we're going to be a little big pile of you know what, and it's starting to stink bad. Uh, yeah, U.S. is uh, not just behind the power curve. It's the power curve has passed by it. Um, U.S. is structurally unprepared to fight this fight. Um, we're, we've been lucky with God's blessings. Uh, we've been lucky to survive uh, uh, during this during these hundred years that China has taken these steps forward. I, I think uh, that. It is very possible that in the 21st century we could really squeeze China, especially with the tariffs. Uh, I know the stock of pork has gone up, skyrocketed in China. The middle and business class of China um, uh, values how much money you're making as a middle class businessman by how much pork you consume that day. Uh, and I know it's hurting our uh, industries here as we're starting to slowly develop other possible markets in Southeast Asia. But uh, my recommendation is if we continue down this path, we squeeze China, uh, hopefully um, Congress, uh, uh, both the House and the uh, Senate, work hard in support of Trump's vision uh, against uh, China. We can at least reverse some of the losses that we've had uh, in this uh, 100-year march towards uh, whoever is going to be the victor. Um, we got to tie China to a point that it realizes that uh, it's literally uh, the weight of the shoulder on its uh, back. Uh, I should say the weight of the world on its shoulders uh, when it comes to how it's tied down, bogged down in Pakistan and Middle East and Africa and in um, uh, South America and even currently as it's trying to strike deals with Europe. Uh, when we're able to do that to it, everything that has done to us over the past 100 years could be reversed given uh, current technologies. It's just that it, uh, it takes a, a strong unified government in the U.S. from the executive to the legislative branch with some slight changes to how U.S. GOAT operates internally approvals with the judiciary for us to really be able to, um, you know, stop the bleeding that uh, been causing us um, the the pain we've been suffering all this time economically. Well, do you see at some point in the future where there will be a direct conflict between the world of Islam and China as they both march towards world dominance? It would be beneficial to us if that happens. Um, the more destabilized Islamic nations are around China, uh, the less opportunity China has to initiate its uh, pressures against us, especially through the Belt and Road Initiative. So, uh, if remember, India is the large, second largest uh, um, Muslim nation in the world. Um, people don't know that. There's a lot of Muslims that live in India, too. Uh, and India is a major buffer against us when it comes to China. Um, I think uh, China having to deal uh, with uh, Islamic 
issues, not just within its borders, but within other nations, to include Afghanistan, to include um, the, all the stands, the Southern Caucasus, uh, having issues with unrest in Mongolia, having to deal with the issues of Hong Kong and the unrest is dealing with in Hong Kong. And they, China will eventually have to go into uh, Hong Kong. It's, it's a no-win game for it to be where it is currently. It has no choice. It, it did this to itself, so it has to go into Hong Kong uh, sooner than later. Uh, with the problems it has to deal with when it comes to uh, Singapore and all other nations that it needs to develop those ports for, uh, to be able to tactically bypass our supremacy in the waters when it comes to Southeast Asia with what it's trying to do in Burma. Um, I think the more destabilized those areas are and the more enemies China has and how it treats its Islamic Muslim populace is more beneficial to us. Wow. There's a lot to think about on this one. Holy cow. Which means that Trump has been right about China all along. And those on the left that are fighting him on it are aiding China in their total world domination. And I didn't realize how far and how bad we've gotten to this point. And I don't think anyone no, else has really paid much attention. Well, it's bad, but everybody else is too worried about uh, winning the next election. Uh, they're not really thinking about the long-term strategies of what we need to do in order to be able to support our our our, our ability to win. Look, I'll give you an, as an example, and if I'm going off tangent, please stop me so we can come back to the main point. But uh, Congress is a two-year Congress, okay? That's all it is. Um November 5th of last year, a new congressman came into the Congress. They won. They came in. Remember, the government wasn't even open till February. So if you had just won as a new congressperson coming in, you weren't even sworn in. You weren't sitting behind your desk, and you weren't doing anything as far as legislative work until February once the government was opened up again. Well, January 10th of uh, this year, um, me being a Republican, uh, had a meeting with other Republicans in Illinois, and we were coming up with possible strategies of how to be able to get the next group of people into Congress in Illinois from the Republican side for the 2020 election. By April, uh, the people who were initially wanting to run could have filed their uh, uh, collected money and filed for their first quarter uh, reporting. Uh, you are a congressman. You just went ahead and won 5 November. You haven't even sat in your seat by February. And there's a person who's already raised money because the opposition party has collected money, supported them in the filing April, a month before you even, uh, a month after you have sat in your seat. So now what happens with these congressmen, congresspeople, they go to what is called a farm. When they get to the farm, both Republicans and Democrats, the leadership comes and says, here's the bills we're concerned about, and here's how we're going to move forward in order to win the 2020 election. So you will be co-signer on this bill. You will be the signer on this bill. Uh, we're going to put you on this committee. We will put you on this committee. Now, you may say, no, I don't want to do that. Then your leadership will bury you. So you're stuck. 
you came in, there's a person already raised money, filed in April to try to beat you in the 2020 election. You haven't even sat yet until uh, February of 2019, and you already have your leadership telling you you're going to be handcuffed. That's what you're going to do. Now, the congressional calendar split in two halves with the August recess. So whatever you decide to do on behalf of your constituents, you have to do before the August recess. Why? Because whatever money might be authorized in the first half of the congressional calendar because of how budget works may not be allocated in the second half of the calendar. So you may have a program that you were able to pass through the system to be able to get on the congressional calendar to be voted on, but you may not have money for that program that just got voted off. Now, the person who had already filed money to try to beat you in the 2020 election had put money in the April coffers. Three months later, has a second quarterly filing. September 3rd of this year, we started collecting signatures in order to be able to run against whoever that we want to run against in the Illinois politics in March when the primaries take hold. You're a person who just walked in. Others have already raised money against you. You're stuck in this fight because the leadership says you're going to fight on these issues, whether it be impeachment or something else that they're going down the route on. You're literally not able to get anything passed. And September 3rd, you have to be out on the streets collecting signatures to file in November to run in a primary in, uh, in March. And you may even have your own party uh, running against you in the primary, and then you're going to be focused on trying to run and win the election for November 2020. While this is all happening, China is working on this 100-year plan. This is why you can't get anything done. And if anyone remembers, when Hillary Clinton ran for Senate in New York, there was a huge scandal about Chinese money that went into her campaign. That was never followed up on. No, and China and Russia, they all know this. They know how our systems work. They know they cannot defeat us on the battlefield. So, But they do know that they could, you know, have effects on us within our internal politics, especially depending on how the politics have divided us. I'll give you an example. The shooting that took place in New Zealand, with New Zealand making the decision that we're going to take all the uh, weapon systems, major assault weapon systems, away from our people. Now, if I'm looking from a strategic standpoint, and I say one day I'm going to get in a shooting war with China, um, the best way to fight China would be to take divisions of the Chinese and bog them down in a traditional battle sense. That that battlefield will change in the future, if not it's already changed with drones and other capabilities. To bog them down into having to be somewhere footprint on the ground in New Zealand. Well, if I've already removed the weapon systems off the battlefield in New Zealand, I've just helped the Chinese <laughs> to have a lesser need to concentrate on that particular battlefield because New Zealand has decided they're going to disarm themselves internally. The young man who went in and conducted the mock shooting prior to going to New Zealand and, you know, killing those innocent people in the mosques had gone on a trip to North Korea. Chinese officials had seen him in North Korea. 
this is not a conspiracy theory issue. What I'm saying is, in the photos that is on open source of him being there, it was an indication that Chinese government, understanding social media, understanding what we call lone wolf attackers, understanding who is who, uh, is able to use any means at its disposal, any possible cracks that it can to flip the screen for his advantage. So is it possible that it could use things that are uh, controversial to us internally uh, when in our system, when it comes to our social values where we fall on the line to be able to drive a narrative to affect our long-term policies for their strategic advantage? Of course it is. Of course it is. In this case, they are able to use whatever capacity that they have and whatever opportunity they have in order to be able to alleviate the pressures on themselves to set the battlefield, then in the future, if that ever happens, they'll be able to be victorious in a short period of time. So much for our listeners to to contemplate, but people can find you on your website, which is the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, by going to nec-se.com. There's so much more I wanted to talk to you about, but we're running short on time here uh, because you also have near and dear to your heart the Assyrian Christian issue. Um, and that people can learn about also by going to your website and listen uh, and learn about the Assyrian families and the military members uh, that do need help from us because uh, this is an ongoing battle and we're going to be looking at uh, they're going to attempt to uh, put 5,000 American Muslims up for election in the office uh, this coming election and we've got a battlefront on all areas it's not just one side it's a gazillion sided. Um, look, our systems are our systems. Um, and what we try to do in the Near East is to show link analysis. Uh, what I know, others know. The problem is I can talk about it because I'm not in a system. Others may not be able to talk about it. I have to be very careful about what I say and how I speak also. Uh, but our foreign policy uh, can be effective. We are a capable nation. We just got to focus. And right now we're all over the place. And uh, if we focus more about burying the hatches in our enemies' heads rather than each other's, I think uh, I think we'll come out on top in this fight. Because remember, at the end of the day, China built its entire strategic plan on uh, quicksand, and we just got to expose it and take it apart slowly. Well, God bless for the hard work you do, sir. No, thank you very much for the opportunity and time, and I hope what I discussed helps. Oh, it yeah. does. It does. <laughs> All right. Uh, check it out, uh, the Leaders Center for Strategic Engagement, nec-se.com. And we've got our next victim up in the bullpen. Uh, returning to the show, he is also – you can find him at the Insider Reports – C.S. Walker. Good afternoon, C.S. How are you today? I'm doing good, Annie. How are you? All right. You have been following this Biden and Ukraine situation, and you seem to know it inside and out. You've done some shows on it. People can find at the Insider Reports. 
uh, and it's really hitting the fan big time. What is the latest? What is going on now? Well, you know, a part of being an, an analyst is taking certain pieces of the puzzle, putting together to get the big picture. Now, the problem is, though, that the pieces of the puzzle, 10 out of 10 times, are not in the same spot. You have to go looking in different areas. Now, I know the last time I spoke with you, I explained to you that it was mostly, this was a big hit coming from the Warren camp. I was partly right. Because as I kept studying and kept looking deeper into this, and I told you I was going to keep digging and digging and digging, all of a sudden, sometimes the pieces are right in front of you, and you don't see them. Now, let's refer to the situation with the transcripts from the phone call. Now, the transcripts, according to the uh, Ukrainian president, he turns around and he says that, oh, yeah, well, don't worry. I'm going to get a, a prosecutor that I trust and a very trusted person. It's my person. And we're going to look into, you know, certain things. And we're going to look into – now, the, before that happened, the president asked him about um, about uh, CrowdStrike. Okay, I want you to look into this, and I want, to let, I want you to tell me what's going on with that. Because according to suppose that you have the uh, this one of the servers from CrowdStrike there in the Ukraine. Now the president turns around from the Ukraine and turns around and tells him, "Oh yeah, 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 we're going to look into that. My person will be in office and we'll start looking into that in September." Annie, what month are we in? We're in <laughs> September. Mm-hmm. I find it odd that all of a sudden this huge smoke screen gets thrown up about the president colluding with the Ukrainians now. Mind you, the same country that helped Hillary Clinton, the same country that helped and, in fact, even meddled in our election by bringing up the entire thing about Paul Manafort. Now, all of a sudden, now the Ukrainians are meddling. They weren't meddling before, but now they're, now they're meddling. I find that completely odd. Not to mention that he says, this is my person. We're going to look into it in September. All of a sudden, the Democrats just lose their ever-loving minds in September. And now they're talking about impeachment in September. So this is telling me there's two aspects to this whole thing. Because, mind you, whenever you try to go out after something, you try to, object, you try to create more than one objective. Because that way, the more objectives within there there's a good chance that you might hit one or two. If you put in five objectives, you might hit one or two. So the objective, part A, is get rid of Joe Biden because A, he's not socialist enough. B, he's embarrassing. C, his mouth is his own worst enemy. D, he's male. He's an old white man. See, the Democrats want to turn around and actually create some kind of historical event. Historically, yes, Barack Obama, like him, hate him, whatever. He was the first African-American president in the United States. And that could be accredited to the Democratic Party, the same way that the first African-American politicians to ever sit in Washington, D.C. were Republicans right after the Civil War. So now the Democrats want more. They want not just control but history. So they want the first female president. And Joe Biden's in the way. He wasn't in the way before. But now they're seeing Elizabeth Warren gaining momentum. They see Elizabeth Warren 
surpassing him in, in some polls. But the big objective with the DNC is CrowdStrike. They don't want that information released. The DNC know that the Russians did not hack their server. Now, why in the Ukraine? Because CrowdStrike turned around and did analysis of the Ukrainian server. There were computer systems in the Ukraine that the CrowdStrike went in there without Ukrainian approval and decided to do some investigating in, the, in some servers. And guess what? The Ukrainians turned around and seized CrowdStrike. They gathered information. They no, exactly. Information. What is CrowdStrike? What is the CrowdStrike? CrowdStrike CrowdStrike is this company in California, go figure, that they turn around and in the event, they basically set up your cybersecurity system for your servers. And if anything happens, they go in there and they do investigate. They do uh, cyber forensics. And they break down what happened, how they get in, what did they take, if they took anything at all, did they embed anything. If you have a virus, they go in there and remove it. They try to save your server. So, and what I find funny is that the Senate representatives for the area of Sunnyvale, California, that CrowdStrike is in, um, Kamala Harris and Dianne Feinstein, two of the heavy hitters in the Democratic Party. I find that odd. But okay, okay, let's just call that a coincidence. Let's call that a funny coincidence. The entire thing has everything to do with CrowdStrike. They're trying to get ahead of this whole situation that would embarrass them. Now, here, the president in the phone call, the Ukrainian president, says, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot. And Ukraine knows a lot about it because they were basically in the middle of it all. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike. I guess you have one of, their, one of your wealthy people, the server. They say Ukraine has it. There are a lot of things that went on, the whole situation. I think you're surrounding yourself with some, some of the same people. In other words, referring to some of the people that helped bring down Paul Manafort and meddle in the presidential election of 2016. Now, President Zelensky later on says, yes, it's important for me, blah, blah, blah. We'd be friends, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, the courtship of Eddie's father. Hey, we're, who's my best friend? Okay, whatever. But now, here's where President Zelensky later on says, I wanted to tell you about the prosecutor. First of all, I understand and I'm knowledgeable about the situation. In other words, the prosecutor that Joe Biden tr had fired. Now, first of all, I understand and I'm knowledgeable since we have won the absolute majority in our parliament, the next prosecutor general will be 100% my person, my candidate who will be approved by the parliament and will start as a new prosecutor in September. He or she will look into the situation specifically to the company that you mentioned in this issue. Now, which company? Was the company the one who Hunter Biden worked for, or is it CrowdStrike? Nobody knows, but people are assuming. So to cover my basis, I'm assuming both. Even though he said the company, as in singular, you have to take into consideration you don't know which company he was referring to. Now, later on, 
The issue of the investigation of the case is actually the issue of making sure to restore honesty, so we will take care of that and we'll work on the investigation of the case. Now, as the Democrats are running around screaming and yelling, oh, my God, oh, my God, collusion, 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 yet again, they're forgetting one thing. Way back when, the United States and the Ukraine signed an agreement. It wasn't a trade agreement, but it was an agreement on justice. And that agreement basically says that if you have somebody in your country that's committing corruption and we have information, we're going to pass it on to you. That's all the president asked to maintain that treaty. That's it. Nothing more. Now, now while the does this, Democrats are running around. Does this mean ahead, that, is, that is why Giuliani is being sent over there? That's exactly why. Notice, not only was Giuliani the former mayor of New York City, but he was also a district attorney. He was a prosecutor. See, what yeah, I'm, see where that's one. going? Exactly. Yeah. Now, here's, here's the funny part. Now, here's the funny part. You were NYPD, correct? Correct. And you know something about the law. And the law states that hearsay evidence is inadmissible evidence in a court of law. Inadmissible evidence basically in any situation because it's hearsay. So this is where the Democrats messed up. Now, here's my my personal analysis. Since this one, and I call it fake whistleblower because it's all hearsay evidence. There's nothing to substantiate what this individual has said. Since this fake whistleblower said, oh, I got it from other people. Oh, okay. Well, since we're not divulging your name, then by law, you have to give us the names of the people that actually gave you this information because they're not protected under the Whistleblower Act. They're not protected because they didn't step up with this information and follow the whistleblower protocol. You did, supposedly. So with that being said, you have to give us their names, and we have to speak to them because they're the ones with the evidence. True or false? Yes. Now, the only other so thing is, is the, the complaint was not lodged against a fellow member of the intelligence community. The president is not a member of that community, so you really cannot find a complaint against him. You're absolutely right. But if we decide, let's just for the sake of justice, let us follow the whistleblower protocol, okay, then you have to cough up the names of the people that told you all these things. Because you are the whistleblower. You are being protected. You are not, your name will not be released. You will not be shown to the entire planet that you are the whistleblower. But your informants will be. So now we can get to the root of the matter. Bypass the whistleblower, go to the snakes in the grass, find out exactly what they said. Did you tell him or her this, this, and this? Did you tell them this? Yes or no? Now, Joe Biden, and what I find funny is that the whistleblower's complaint, everybody's talking about how it was perfect. It, it, it looked like it was written by a law professor. Keep that in mind, law professor. And that this whistleblower had uh, complaint had footnotes and everything else. Annie, there's only one person I know of that would gain a great deal by submitting this 
complaint, one person who believes stands a chance of being the first female president of the United States, this one person who happens to also be a law professor, and that would be Elizabeth Warren. Now, am I saying she did it? No. Am I getting the feeling that somebody in her camp, in her campaign, was heavily involved in this? Oh, oh yes, eyeball deep, heavily involved. May not have been her. The same way the entire birther movement occurred from the Clinton campaign way back in the day when they first ran up against Barack Obama. It wasn't Hillary Clinton that said that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, but somebody inside her camp did that. So now Hillary gets away with it, but that person was from her camp. So the Clinton campaign started the entire thing on the birther movement. Same thing, I believe, is happening here in the Warren camp because history has a funny way of repeating itself. And people have a funny tendency of repeating stupid things that have happened in history. C.S. Yes, sir. Hey, this is C.S. I was listening to Rush earlier today, and I want to know if you agree with his summation of this. He seems to think that um, the sudden rush to impeach um, Trump is somehow related to the fact that um, Trump, um, Barr, and a couple of other people in the Justice Department are getting close to um, the truth of what's you know behind a lot of the stuff that's going on in Washington. So they want to run interference with Trump and get him out before they get you know. To, to the point where they can start naming names. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree with him because that's the thing with the CrowdStrike. Crowd, like I said, CrowdStrike is this cyber company. They're the ones that went in and examined the DNC server. They're the ones that said, oh, yes, you were hacked by the Russians. Well, how do you know we were hacked by the Russians? Because we found the Cyrillic alphabet. We found programmed, typed in Cyrillic, in your computer system. There's one little problem, though. The Ukrainian, the country of the Ukraine, also uses the Cyrillic alphabet. Funny coincidence. But to me, it's a simple case that no, nobody hacked that system. And CrowdStrike turned around, and when the FBI told CrowdStrike, okay, tell us your findings. Oh, no, no, we already gave the DNC the findings. Oh, Okay, well, give us the server. Oh, no, 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 you, we can't give you the server. Why not? Because it's not ours. And by the way, we give it back to the DNC. Okay, well, hey, DNC, give us the report. Okay, here's the report. And we also need the server. You can't have the server. Why? Because we already cleaned it. It's been wiped clean. All the viruses, anything and everything has been removed. Oh, okay, CS, that's like somebody breaking into your house, steals everything out of your house. You call the police. The police show up, and they say, okay, well, we would like to go in and start the investigation. No need. I hired a private detective, and he's doing everything. No, but we'd like to go in and at least assist. No, you can't. That makes absolutely zero sense. If a crime has been committed, such as hacking into the DNC server, 
you want the federal authorities in there finding out what the hell happened, what was taken, what was tampered with, so that way later on down the road you have a leg to stand on. They cut their own feet from underneath them, but yet people continue to believe that the Russians hacked the DNC server. And there's other, there's other circumstances to prove that nobody from another country hacked their system. So this whole thing is basically Elizabeth Warren is getting a boost by taking down Joe Biden because right now here's a woman, a, an in, supposedly intelligent woman, who wasn't smart enough to admit, no, I'm not Native American. But here we have this woman running for president. And what's standing in her way? Two old white guys. Two grumpy old white guys. And they both have bad hair. So, of course, (laughs) this is an attempt to help Elizabeth Warren, but it's also an attempt to stop the search into CrowdStrike. That's all this is. Oh, yeah. So if... If they accomplish one over the other, it's still a win for the Democrats. It's still a win. But the problem is, though, that they forgot about the, They didn't research and they didn't look into the fact that there is a treaty between the Ukraine and the United States to share information on possible conspiracy or possible fraudulent acts conducted. They didn't know this. And this is going to blow up in their faces hard. Now, does Trump know this? I'm sorry, go ahead. Does Trump know this? Does Trump know this? Uh, He better damn well know it because if he doesn't give me the phone number, I'll let him, hey, yo, uh, Mr. President, with all due respect, uh, your people need to get their heads out their butts because uh, I got news for you. You had every right to do that. Not to mention, there is no, when it comes to Joe Biden, there is no digging. There's no digging needed. He openly admitted that he intimidated and threatened to withhold aid to the Ukrainians, which is against the law because it was to benefit his son. Now, here's one thing that people keep forgetting to take a look at. Joe Biden was the vice president of the United States. Joe Biden has zero authority to turn around and withhold aid that was already granted to that country. Either Congress or the president have that right, not Joe Biden, the vice president. So in order for Joe Biden to have some weight behind that threat, like when he told, told him, and if you don't believe me, call the United States, somebody else knew. And that other somebody was the person that gave him the approval and the support to say, yeah, do it. I got your back. And that would be the um, president of the United States. So now the president of the United States is also implicated in blackmailing the Ukrainian government. Well, do you think anything will come out of this when they do the, quote, impeachment investigation to bite them fully? Do you think they're going to be able to uncover this and then answer to it? If they can get the information on CrowdStrike. Now, as you can see, President Trump is already fighting back. He's bringing up the entire Biden thing. He's fighting back. If the Ukrainians can actually step up and do this collection of information and send it to the United States on CrowdStrike, yes. Now, to many people, some of your listeners, I'm pretty sure that they're saying, well, all this sounds like conspiracy theory. No, 
No. Joe Biden hopping on a flying saucer after threatening the Ukrainian government and landing in the United States in Washington, D.C. in five minutes because his flying saucer traveled at light speed, that's a conspiracy theory, okay? And it's a crazy one at that. But all of this is not beyond the realm of possibility because of one simple fact. It's all happened in the past. All these things have already happened before. We all know that the Russians really didn't hack into the DNC. We all know that CrowdStrike went in there and took a look at the DNC server. All of that is fact. There's no conspiracy behind that. So if you stay within the realm of possibility, well, it's not so far-fetched, and it's not conspiratorial whatsoever. I mean, believe me, I've called up several people. I'm like, dude, do I sound like a nutcase saying this? And every one of them are like, no, because stuff like this happened in the past. I'm like, okay, thank you. Now, when they turn around and they complain that, well, why did it take the phone call and lock it up in a server that needs a password that's never been used before? Well, maybe because the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, got tired after his phone call with the president of Mexico and his phone call with the prime minister of Australia was leaked out to the press by a leaker, and they said that they were going to take measures in order to secure this information so this never happens again. Oh, by the way, we have a server with a password already on it. Okay, put it there. So none of this is beyond the realm of possibility, and none of it is what you might call fabricated or a dream. Because sometimes when I listen to myself, I'm like, I have to call some of my buddies, and they're like, no, dude, you sound like you're right on track. I mean, you tell me, Annie. You tell me, CS. You're right on. I wouldn't put it. Bobby. I would say you're right on, absolutely. But CS, people can find you at the Insider Reports and know that we put a um, link on the show page that goes directly to your website uh, for the uh, for your radio show, and uh, people can check it out over there. Um, but Can I ask a question, Annie? Of our show. We're, Mike, we've got like six minutes left, so if it takes up only two seconds, fine, because I gotta, we're at our max hour. It'll take out less than that. Question for the guest. Uh, do you think as we speak, indictments from Barr and his staff, which are total Trumpers, are uh, taking place, and one day we'll wake up and find out that overnight an awful lot of people are in handcuffs? And uh, the libs will really be flipping out, yes or no? Thanks, Annie. No. No, honestly, I'm sorry, no. I mean, everybody's talking about, oh, there's, you know, you have people on television going, tick-tock, tick-tock, the libs are going to pay, yeah, the Democrats are going to pay. Nobody's going to be arrested. Nobody's going to be arrested. I mean, let's take a look at uh, Nixon. Nixon, he turned around, and he supposedly was impeached, and what he did was a crime. Did he go to prison? No. I mean... Nobody, and I'm sorry to tell you this, America, nobody's going to go to prison. Not a single solitary person. Sorry to break your heart. CS, thank you for joining us, and thank you for the uh, 911 on this one. But that's all the show we got for today. Uh, We will be back next Friday, and I will be putting the guests up. I think some of them are already up on my episode page, so just check out for the future. Um, Great, great information, CS, and thank you so much. 
Not a problem, Manny. Take care. See us. Both of you have a great weekend. All Bye right. We've got to get you back on. All right. And Mike, thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for joining us also. But we're going to close out the show with My Name is America by Todd Allen Harrington. So I say until then, good night and God bless. If I can hit the right key and get this going. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has